you doing? My knee, you're practically busting my damn knee. Talking me now? Stalking you. I was protecting you. From what? Southern perverts? Lost is over, but we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps for whatever the case may be. And I'm Josh Wigler, joined here by Mike Bloom, and we are just a couple of navel-gazing, no-fun mopey types ready to talk about the worst episode of Lost ever! Good evening, boys and ghouls. Mike Bloom could not be here, but I, Count Jacula, I'm here as the co-host this week. This is an absolute nightmare, and I'm killing it now. It's done. Count Jacula is dead. Mike Bloom, come back. No, this is Josh. already going to be. No, no. What, what no, episode are we talking no, about? No, is it no. Tabula Rasa? No, God. Would it be Grave? No. How no. about Through the Spooking Glass? This is awful. Or this is how, awful. Oh, I think it's whatever the curse may be. This is your worst bit. This is your worst bit. This is the worst bit you've ever done, and All I right. hate it. D- 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 Count Jackula, get out of here. Okay? Uh, that was Until terrible. Until next Halloween. Sorry, uh, Josh. I'm a little bit uh, late. I got held up at the bank, but I'm here now. Oh, my God. Thank God you are here. If I had to do this with Count Jackula, I think that uh, Lost Down the Hatch would have lasted. 12 episodes of a podcast and that would have been it to be fair i think count jackula should have had a more nasally voice but it's very tough to do both a jack impression and a vampire impression in the same breath no you did a great job you did a great job you did a fantastic job oh my gosh uh the only thing worse than whatever the case may be is count jackula (laughs) That's the that's the bottom of the barrel as far Just wait as until goes. there's a deleted scene or lost two when they repeat this episode and you know one of the poor hostages gets gunned down and then he comes back to life as a vampire and then that's oh. gonna be the that's the person chasing Kate. It's not Edward no. Mars anymore. It's uh. it's Edward the vampire. Uh Count Jacula, obviously the smoke monster. It's not even a question. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's more of he's more of a mist monster at this point, but I think definitely a vaporous uh, villain if he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, putting a uh, putting a time stamp on this podcast. Of course, we are podcasting uh, in in our in our existence as we were podcasting before Halloween 2019. But you are listening to this after Halloween 2019. Uh, Count Jacula here in the house to help ring in the spooky holiday and uh things couldn't possibly be more scary than the prospect of talking about whatever the case may be not the worst episode in lost history but in my official rankings of lost at the hollywood reporter it comes in as the second worst ever episode of lost we are going to uh we're going to take that take to task here in this podcast we're going to talk through whatever the case may be the second ever kate austin flashback episode is it really as bad as i have hyped it up in the past or have i gotten this one wrong i think it's gonna be very fun to talk that through both from a story perspective and some of the behind the scenes aspects of this episode. Of course, this is Lost Down the Hatch. It is a spoiler-filled rewatch podcast. If you have not watched Lost in its entirety, you are not safe here unless you do not mind 
being spoiled. Your feedback, your questions, your comments, greatly appreciated and welcome. We have a whole section devoted to it. Down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is where you can send all of that. You can also hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at Count Jacula. I mean, at a Mike Bloom type. Uh, now I, I missed out on an opportunity to change my name to a spooky name. For Halloween, we'll have to wait until next year when we're, you know, probably uh, in the middle of season three to see if Count Jackula can rear his ugly head come the spooky season. Mike, definitely try and get the Count Jackula handle before this podcast goes live. Otherwise, you are going to be stalked by a Count Jackula who is going to become a fixture in the Twitterati of Down the Hatch. And I don't think that's something that you want. But maybe you do. Whatever it is, uh, whatever the case may be with that, Mike, I am not here to punish you one way or the other. Also tag at Post Show Recaps if you are sending us feedback on Twitter. We record this podcast on Tuesdays. Your best bet is to send your feedback in by Monday evenings. Uh, with all of that said, we are going to go forth into the jungle here. We're going to do things a little bit differently uh, than we have done in the past. We have a very rigid structure that we try to adhere to here on Down the Hatch, but we are going to be, uh, some sections are going to be bleeding into each other, Mike, uh, this week. Uh, we're going to we're gonna be bringing some others earlier into the show. We are going to have some others Is this late. the effect of Ethan Rom now? The others have just seeped their way into all sections of our show i don't know if it's for as a permanent fixture but it certainly fits one week after ethan rom's uh daring kidnapping of one claire littleton uh but we are talking about whatever the case may be this is the 12th hour of lost it is directed by prolific lost director jack bender it is written by damon lindelof it is co-written by jennifer johnson it is uh it originally aired january 5th 2005, the first episode of 2005 of Loss, and it is a month after the Hatch discovery that this yeah. episode Welcome to 2005, airs. everybody. While, you know, America set wrapped in anticipation for what Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith was <laughs> going to bring yeah. to theaters, we were instead, uh, you know, trying to keep uh, our minds off of it by watching some episodes from the back half of Season 1 of Loss, but we've officially moved away from 2004 we've moved away from 2004 we are in 2005 here in 2019 looking back at whatever the case may be all about kate austin and the the halliburton briefcase and the tiny toy airplane and the bank robbery the daring bank robbery in order to get that tiny little airplane and it's a highly celebrated hour of television i mean celebrated is an interesting term i guess a funeral is technically a celebration right so mm -hmm. maybe it counts as a celebrated hour in a manner of speaking yeah i so so here it is this is this is what's up all right so whatever the case may be let's spare you some suspense not that there is much to begin with this is going to we're going to walk away from this podcast with a new title holder for the worst episode of lost through this point in Lost. I think the question is to what degree? Mm. Where will it where will it fall in the 4.2 stars? Uh, it is absolutely going to be anchoring that list through whatever the case may be. But will it stay that way uh, through season one? Uh, it certainly I don't think will stay that way through the whole series, but will whatever the case may be, be in the anchor spot for all of season one? Is it the worst of season one? 
Are there reasons why it's maybe a little bit better than remembered? Is it exactly as bad as remembered? We'll talk about the story, but I think it's important before we even talk about the story to talk a little bit about the history behind this episode and where we were in the production of Lost at the moment in time when whatever the case may be is conceived. So we're bringing in other number one, even before we start talking about this episode in its entirety. And just as a quick yada yada for those who don't, uh, who aren't going back and watching the episodes and you're instead relying on Mike and I uh, to tell you what happens in each episode, we'll go through it beat by beat through the story. But this is the one where Kate, she finds the Halliburton case that the marshal brought onto the plane and the waterfall and it's got her toy airplane in it that belonged to her boyfriend from childhood who she accidentally got killed and she's very upset about it. And she goes through a whole ridiculous uh, thing to get the toy airplane out of the briefcase without telling anyone anybody hey there's a toy airplane in that briefcase that i really want could you just yeah. help me get it it's like if a uh, dog day afternoon met babes in toyland yeah so uh, that sounds like a potentially better uh story than some of what we get in this episode <laughs> uh and it's just it's a lot of really frustrating stuff if you're a kate fan even if you're not a kate fan i think this is probably an episode that sours some people on Kate. But this, that's the gist of this episode. Uh, we're, we're a month on from the hatch reveal. Uh, people are in real time uh, very excited to find out what the hell the hatch is all about. You don't really get much of any follow-up on that except for like the barest minimum. No, I'm pretty sure at this point they were probably still uh, thinking about removing the location of the hatch, hence why the hatch was not even shown. We get a hint of it with Locke we don't even see an axe handle. We have a yellow handle to symbolize the axe that they might be using in a future episode to break apart the hatch. But no, the big mystery is left on the floor for this one. So we, w- we will start here with some history behind whatever the case may be. It's other number one. And Ben Martell, as always, the great Ben behind the curtain, has compiled these facts for us, uh, compiling this from uh, an interview that Damon Lindelof did with The Wrap once upon a time and also from Javier Griot, Mark Swatch's Lost Will and Testament that he, uh, that he wrote that if you have not gone and read it yet, you really ought to do it. We will link to both of these uh, articles in our show notes. But this is from Ben Martell. Damon Lindelof was originally looking for a job as a staff writer on Alias. It was only chance that he was looking at the same time as J.J. Abrams was looking for someone to work on Lost with. The end result was that Damon ended up being showrunner with J.J. going back to Alias. The responsibility and work required to be showrunner of Lost was immense for Lindelof, who didn't feel at all prepared or experienced enough for the job. He tried to quit making the show within a couple of episodes. He then resolved to leave after episode 13. Mm. This was this was clearly at least in part because of the writer's room. Javier Griot, Mark Swatch, described that it had big personalities, big ideas, and even bigger opinions. Not everybody played well together. Not everybody took disagreement in stride. And it was often very difficult to get the ducks to quack in unison. For Damon, the room's natural tendency to argue everything until sternly being told otherwise and then continue until threatened with outright extinction was a source of much stress and anxiety, end quote from Javier. Ben Martel continues, Damon viewed Carlton Cuse as a mentor from, t- from his time working together on Nash Bridges and managed to convince him to come on board. While Carlton had started some work on the show as early as raised by another, it was only while breaking all the best cowboys have daddy issues that he started working full time. 
After Carlton arrived, as Javi describes, quote unquote, Damon entered to tell us that he was leaving. After much conversation, we said some confused and emotional goodbyes and he left. And not just from that office, he quite literally walked out of the building and wasn't seen for the rest of the day or the following day or the day after, end quote. Damon was gone for at least a week. Even though we can't pinpoint exactly when Damon was gone, it's clear that between Damon's stress and leave of absence, the production of at least whatever the case may be in hearts and minds were deeply affected. Damon eventually returned just in time to veto a proposed story in which Hurley was revealed to be an amateur hypnotist who would have used his abilities to pry the location of the kidnapped Claire from the now amnesiac Charlie. Not, Not too dissimilar from what Libby does to Claire in season two, so maybe I shouldn't scoff too much. Clearly they were able to keep uh, some level of hypnosis still in the show. Uh, Ben concludes, Damon still originally was thinking of leaving the show after the first season. However, the steadying presence of Carlton Cuse made a big difference. With Carlton on board, the writing staff were cleared out. In came Leonard Dick, Eddie Kitsis, and Adam Horowitz for the end of the first season and several more long-term writers for season two. Out went the entire original writing team except for Javier Griot Marxwatch. In the words of Javi, Damon paid a steep price to bring about the chemical reaction that resulted in the show's amazing Amazing premiere and first run of episodes. Hmm. Uh, so that's that's the story. That's the case as it may be, uh, according to Ben Martell, going back and doing some research into all of this. I actually just listened, Mike, to um, an episode of the Through the Looking Glass podcast, yes. the concluding episode of that, uh, that, that the, the really great miniseries that was produced by Tara Bennett and Mo Ryan, uh, and they had Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse on for the finale. It's a must listen uh, if you're listening to as much Lost podcasting as you've been listening to by going down the the hatch with us uh and and he doesn't talk about it in 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 really super specific detail but Lindelof does go back and and tell a story about how right around the time of breaking raised by another uh the show hadn't quite premiered yet it was about to premiere he was told that they had to reach like a certain numbers threshold and they would be getting the back nine uh for the rest of season one and Lindelof remembers actively rooting against that outcome uh and then of course the show premieres to such a threshold that that back nine is very much guaranteed uh and he says that he he went to his office the next day and had to like put on like the brave face of a leader but then when he was able to be in private with Carlton Cuse who was new to the show but was a mentor to Damon at that time uh, you know somebody who you know they they are you know comrades in arms by the end of Lost and, and certainly great friends and contemporaries at that point but the dynamic at least at the start is is Lindelof leaning on somebody who he knows has so much experience and, and had worked under in the past uh, as, as his mentor uh, Lindelof goes to his office according to the way Lindelof tells the story it says he was surrounded by so many congratulatory muffins uh who's muffin uh and is uh finally able to openly weep in front of somebody uh and that this was the moment where Carlton Q said to him this is a very lucky moment this does not happen for a lot of shows hopefully someday you will be able to appreciate that uh but in Lindelof's telling of the tale in the through the looking glass podcast he was not yet able to appreciate that. Uh, and this is when he takes some time off. And it's right around the time of whatever the case may be. This episode that I have maligned as the second worst episode ever of Lost. Is that deeply unfair given the circumstances surrounding the creation of this episode? I mean, it's interesting. And I don't want to, you know, look at the process behind Lost too much through the metatextual stuff of what's going on on screen. But the story that Ben wrote here, I mean, it reminds me a bit of what happens in White Rabbit, 
right? Here's a guy who has become very burdened and stressed out with leading a group of people who are very contentious, thrown into this room together in an environment to survive and create the most, uh, the best material possible. It's a very stressful situation. He ends up, you know, taking off, very much doubting his leadership skills. Enter uh, an older man who has some experience in this regard, at least he uh, presents himself with that, and is able to convince this person to come back and serve as sort of a, a guide to him. Now, luckily, the relationship between Carlton and Damon is not as contentious as what happens between Jack and Locke, but <laughs> right, it's, yeah. it's sort of eerie parallels there in you know bringing someone back into the fold. Also, I hope that Damon didn't go to Thailand for that week. But if he <laughs> did, that so. would very much inspire what happens yeah. down the line. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I just, I and and Mike, I know you can relate to this as well as a content creator. We're content creators, and 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 content creators, if they're honest and they look at themselves in the mirror, uh, it's not something that's like a popular thing to say in public, let alone on a podcast. But like. We know sometimes our shit really stinks. Yep. We know we know when we've released a stinker out into yeah, the sometimes world. Sometimes we go on and think, oh, if I do a big vampire impression, that's really going to start <laughs> off a podcast with a bang. <laughs> Instantly iconic. But you know, like you you know when like some something didn't work, or you know when you just were having a rough time. You know, like if you were going through something in your own life that that made it difficult to to achieve a quality level that you would be actively proud of but to a certain extent the the act of survival is the victory uh like the fact that like i i don't know how many hundreds i i wrote literally over a hundred stories about six episodes of television when game of thrones aired its final season uh and i i could not tell you at least 75% of those stories off the top of my head. I have no memory of writing much of that Listen, stuff. And it's I'm fine. sure no matter what, they all got invalidated by the final episode. I'm, so. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that there is hot trash in there. I'm sure that there are articles that are riddled with typos uh, because I just had to write quickly and I had to get my job done. Uh, and so take that out of the creative process. Apply that to any job uh, or, or most jobs at the very least where precision is very key for a lot of jobs. But in some jobs, you just need to survive and do the best that you can and find a way to forgive yourself when it is not necessarily of a certain quality level. Uh, and sometimes that's easier for for some people than others. Or sometimes like mm. some failures are easier to accept than others and some failures are harder to, to, to get past than others. But I think when I have evaluated an episode like whatever the case may be in the past, I've done it without this context, without ever really appreciating where the headspace of the people behind Lost, uh, what that was, what that must have been, what it must have been like to be this deep in the process of creating this show that had yet to be released to the wild, uh, that nobody knew what was what was being baked in the hatch of the writer's room at this point by Raised by Another. That's a lot of Lost already has mm-hmm. occurred behind closed doors, and it is of such an exceptional quality level that it's relatively miraculous. Uh, so... Can, can someone like Damon Lindelof, who's about 30 or so at the time that he is making the show, younger than me, about the same age as you, right, Mike? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is not an easy thing to wrap your head around. Uh, and for for a guy like that, with all of this pressure for things to have been moving so fast, uh, to, to come out here in the 12th hour and co-write something that is not the best episode of the show, uh, is that a little, should it be a little bit more forgivable than I have given it credit for in the past? 
past? I ultimately do think so. It doesn't absolve it of being a not fantastic episode of Lost, but I, I think it, it helps me uh, adjudicate it in a different light than I have in the past. Right. Uh, and, and worth getting that context out as we're going down the hatch and trying to look at some of this stuff that's going on behind the scenes that helps drive the episodes into being what they are. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think there's almost a newfound fascination with it due to another thing about us as content creators is that our moods that we're in when we create pieces often inform, you know, the moods behind it. You talk about Picasso and all of the various periods he went through is, is a, a, you know, a nice resemblance to that. And I think this episode is very emblematic as to Damon's creative process at the time, since, you know, he was a co-writer on this episode. This episode, in a word to me, is aimless. And, you know, you talk about the history, the history behind it all, aside from all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes... We mentioned it before, but I think that what also helps this episode from our rewatch perspective is that we're only watching this a week after all the best cowboys have daddy issues. Right. I think that one of the initial issues that really brought on, you know, while it was actually pretty highly rated, I think it was actually like one of the highest rated episodes of season one, probably just because of the acclaim built from the month long break. It's probably one of the least regarded episodes, critically speaking, for season one, because it's a similar type of case with what people attribute a lot of fervor to with Across the Sea in terms of where it's placed in the chronology of it all. We just had this big, epic episode where Charlie nearly died, Jack brought him back to life, Ethan has now revealed himself as full villain, warned Jack that, you know, he might come to kill you, but he still has Claire kidnapped. Fans waited for a month through the holidays saying, oh my god, I can't wait to see what happens next. What happened with the hatch? What's going to happen with Claire? And this is an episode where this all really doesn't get acknowledged in the way that fans had hoped. And I think that was representative of the fact that Damon was going through some stuff and maybe didn't necessarily know how to break that story at the point. Maybe he knew the beats, but not exactly how to make things flow. And as a result, much like Sawyer and Kate in the first act here, we get a bit of treading water. And in terms of setting up momentum after a month-long break, it's not a great place to start. Not a great place to start. Agreed. Uh, but it is the place that we are going to anyway. So let's talk about whatever the case may be from a story perspective. And we will we will talk about it uh, storyline by storyline, scene by scene. Then we will get to everybody's feedback. And then we will come down with our official 4.2 star rating of the episode. Before we get into it, Mike, uh, let us continue perusing the official Down the Hatch series Bible. Since we have already read an official series Bible entry for Kate Austin, we now find ourselves with an unofficial Down the Hatch series Bible entry to read about Kate once again from the Ben Behind the Curtain. Any guesses as to who we are writing about in this episode? So... I threw out last week, jokingly, that it would be about the guns. Now I'm a little nervous that it might be about the guns, that much okay. like another Ben from Lost Lore, I thought something, and Ben put it in his magic box and produced a, a background of a gun for me in our series Bible. All right. Well, you're close. This is a series Bible entry about Hallie Burton. Uh, oh, Lord. Reserved and with an impregnable ability to keep secrets, Hallie Burton 
is one of the most mysterious survivors of the crash. Halliburton was a a constant companion to Marshal Edward Mars for many years. Combining Mars' persistence and demeanor with Halliburton's special set of skills to apprehend America's most wanted together. However, Halliburton betrayed Mars by knocking him out during the plane crash and helping Kate escape from her handcuffs. Shortly after the crash, Halliburton fled into the jungle, leaving barely a trace, and only Kate knows just how helpful he could be to their chances of survival. Note, Halliburton has not yet been cast, could be replaced by a prop for budgetary reasons. Oh, wait a minute. Was Halliburton the man or the woman that was one of the dead bodies underwater where the case (laughs) just happened to be nestled underneath the seat? I think Halliburton was the smoke monster. Confirmed. Pretty sure. Okay. Pretty sure. All right. Let's get into whatever the case may be with the assistance of eight sounds. And you've already heard a little snippet at the top of this show from the first scene of whatever the case may be. And it is uh, whatever the Kate may tree uh, was the pun. Oh, I love that, Josh. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, God. Uh, Kate is climbing a tree. Uh, She has so much confidence in her tree climbing game now. You have to to fall in order to climb. She did it one-handed and was able to cut Charlie down last time. She is flying or climbing high at this rate. Yeah, this is definitely the high point, quite literally, for Kate (laughs) in this episode. Uh, She's picking fruits. Uh, She's got fruits to pick. She comes down. She sips some water. She hears a branch snap, and she hears it again. We're kind of paranoid. The show has left us in a paranoid place after the ethaning. The tree snaps again, and she throws a rock, and it's just Sawyer. Uh, And that's where we get the great line where he says, I'm protecting you. I'm not stalking you. She says, from what? Southern perverts? Which is (laughs) just pretty, pretty funny. Uh, But that that leads us in. I I think we should continue the scene because there's some more funny stuff from this interaction between Kate and Sawyer. And it's ultimately going to uh, lead us into where we will be for the first act of this episode. So let's take it to sound number one. The hell are you doing all the way out here anyway? Everyone's been eating a lot. This is the only place the trees aren't picked clean. Yeah, well, you shouldn't be out here alone. Not after what happened. No, I'm fine. I can take care of myself. Oh, of course. I don't need protecting. I can take care of myself. Me cage. Me throw rocks. What, you smell blood on the wind? You don't hear that? What are you doing? I need to soak my sore knee. Freckles, all we've been through on this damn island, we deserve something good. What, you gonna say no? You some sort of navel-gazing, no-fun mopey type? Navel-gazing, no-fun mopey type is the wimpy little non-leader of the Lost Cannon. <laughs> Sawyer has a way with words. He's being Sawyer Savage here. I, there, there are several points from this scene. First, I mean, Sawyer is bringing up an interesting point. I'm actually, frankly, a little surprised that Jack has not instituted, speaking of another Survivor reference, a buddy system, considering how, yes, Charlie and Claire did perhaps a little uh, fictionally, uh, you know, uh, unrealistically get captured by Ethan together. But you would think he'd probably institute this thing of like, nobody go out alone. Always Mm -hmm. bring somebody to swim with or pick fruit with because we don't want to get, you know, uh, kidnapped when you're not looking. 
if you don't swim together, you're going to drown alone. Just ask Joanna. Yeah, poor Joanna. R.I.P. Yeah, I, I'm a, a little intrigued. Sawyer, again, has a weird way with words. What is you smell blood on the wind? Yeah, yeah. I don't get that either. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't like, really <laughs> don't understand that. Like, I, like, maybe it had gone back to him how good she was of a tracker, but I didn't. I didn't hear a breeze Maybe. or feel yeah. a breeze. Or is that just like a, a colloquial Southern expression? She Kate. She throw rock. She smell blood on the wind. <laughs> that simple. Sawyer's a macking game. Yes, he might have, uh, you know, earned some points in the MVP area. But I feel like from a romantic aspect, this episode makes it very clear that he's still at first base. In fact, he hasn't even left home plate at this rate, considering that he has moved absolutely nowhere with Kate, especially when he wrangled a kiss out of her when he was bloodied and beaten. Yeah, he's going to he's going to try in this episode uh, and some of his tactics are not going to be great. Uh, If you haven't watched the episode in a while and you're just hearing the sounds and hearing Mike and I talk about it, they've just discovered a waterfall. Uh, They're going to go swimming in the waterfall and the the skinny dipping James Sawyer Ford is going to who has to soak his knee is his excuse for getting into the water. Uh, He's going to take his shirt off. He's going to take his shoes off. He's wearing jeans. He's going to leave the (sighs) jeans on. He's going to go and go swimming with his jeans on. Uh, This is uh, why would you why would you ever do this? This Your clothing is limited. Terrible terrible decision josh not to you know uh, relate to our own island experience but you know when we were in fiji before uh we had what was called a wet landing when we first got there you know we were we jumped into the ocean a bit to make a landing at the place we were staying and i got my socks wet i put them out in the fijian sun to dry five days later they still weren't dry they did not dry one iota i cannot imagine in a similar tropical climate how long Sawyer's jeans took to dry? They still might be drying to this point, 15 years after the fact. This is a terrible, terrible choice. He just needs to listen to Rupert Bonham, who told him a year ago in Survivor Pearl Islands about how wearing jeans and swimming with jeans is just a terrible idea. There's a probably a deleted scene somewhere where Sun had to make Sawyer a skirt because it was chafing against him so much. Yeah, so he's going to go with his jeans on. He should absolutely be skinny dipping. And he had a belt on. Why was the belt on, too? The belt is on, the whole deal. Uh, I guess because otherwise he can't show it on television. Uh, But at the very least, you could go in your your briefs, your boxer briefs, or your tidy whities or whatever you're wearing underneath there, unless he's commando. I mean, Uh, I would not be surprised. I just feel like maybe ABC can't show us. That's that's the deal. Uh, But they go and they go swimming. And he's like dunking her and he's splashing at her. And he's like, let's go swim to the rock. And it's like kind of sweet, right? Like this is sort of sweet. Am I a navel gazing, no fun mopey type for not feeling like this is like a sort of sweet moment? Or is it a little bit dopey? Is it a navel gazing, no fun dopey type of scene? I don't know. Mm. I'm in my own head about this. Well, I think if you compare it to the other quote unquote fun scenes of the golf, I mean, this is, I would say, fun to watch. This honestly just seemed like an excuse to have Josh Holloway and Evangeline Lilly, like, go swim, go swimming for a second. Like It's a beautiful location. Yeah. It's like, let's just take advantage of so, it. To the point where we'll see it multiple times uh, in the future, which we'll certainly get to uh, in an other down the line. But I would say that from a writing perspective, it does not hold water compared to those other fun-loving scenes. Proving that Sawyer is no Hurley. I mean, this is... Enjoyable, enjoyable enough. I will say, as many criticisms as we may nitpick with this episode, I actually enjoyed the first act. I think that the the Sawyer and Kate stuff 
while, again, a little repetitive, we are once again getting the beats of Sawyer's macking on Kate and Kate rebuffs his advances. This at least is a little bit break from the tension. This is, uh, you know, showing she's she's being a little bit playful with him. They're dunking each other. And then you just have this stark, horror-filled reality of them finding two bodies under the water, which brings them back to the reality of the situation. I thought it was actually really well done. It's, it's a really fun way to start off the episode, especially... The WTF of it all, given once more, we waited four weeks to see this happen. Yeah, so they're swimming, and then they go underwater, and he's, like, tickling her underwater. I will, and I will see... also say, uh, Josh Holloway already showing off his expert diver skills uh, with just, like, an Olympic-worthy dive off that rock. Uh, he'll just have to save those skills for, like, three years down the line when he has to drop out of a helicopter. Kate runs, Sawyer jumps. Uh, so they, they go swimming, they go underwater, and then they see a pair of B-O-D-Y-S bodies uh, to, to, to put a point on it. And we get like sort of this weird slow-mo once again uh, as we're looking at the corpses before we cut to the lost title. I don't know when that's going to stop. I wonder if we'll, we'll be able to track it once the weird slow-mo effects leave mm. lost. Uh, but for now, still intact. Maybe this will be after Hearts and Minds, once Damon sort of comes back from his own walkabout with a renewed sense of mind with Carlton by his side. Maybe Carlton's like, okay, first thing has to go, the stupid slow-mo shot. The weird slow-mo, we gotta kill it. It's gotta go, it's gotta go. Uh, So we go to the Lost title, and when we come back, uh, they both come up from the water, and Sawyer's first question is, are you okay? And Kate says she's fine. And then very quickly, Sawyer, like, now that, like, he knows that she's fine, he's like, all right, so I'm just gonna go be a scoundrel and a thief, and I'm gonna go check the bodies. Maybe like, they got maybe they got cool stuff on him. What? Yeah, but like, what use is the stuff that's going to be in his wallet? You know, with there being no economy on the island, considering that everything that's going to be in that wallet most likely is going to have some sort of transactional value. It, it doesn't seem like there's likely a lot of stuff in the wallet that he can be used at Sawyer's country store. Not on the island, but what if they get rescued? And now he's got, you know, he's hoarded like $3,000 from the bodies he's uh, looted across the way. So it's like, you know, if I get out of here, that I co- I get out of here with three k and a beach vacation. It's not a terrible haul. It could be better, but it could be mm. worse. Yeah, I guess. So he's the, only, he's the one that really feels like he has a job to do here. Yeah, he's, he's still working. He's earning it's a on paycheck. The clock. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but they go under and they, they see uh, the case. Uh, and Kate wants help. Uh, she recognizes it. That's Hallie Burton. They go back a long way. Uh, of course, pronounced Halliburton, but Hallie Burton is funnier. Uh, and so she's going to say, I need some help. Uh, and she says, it's mine. That's my, that's my case. I need an assist. Uh, and they go down there, and they dislodge it from the seats with some effort. They bring it back up. I feel like the underwater stuff uh, is decently impressive for uh, being filmed in 2004, airing in 2005. I mean, I always have envy slash admiration for actors who are able to record underwater maybe it's because uh, of my own fear of open water but i mean they i don't know how many takes they had to do but considering they had to register expressions on their face while being underwater as well in addition to the way they were filming underwater i thought it was a very interestingly done scene uh though this will unfortunately bring the case into the world of lost and bring the case to the forefront of this episode much to everyone's chagrin yeah, eyes open underwater. I don't understand how people can do it. That is a nightmare to me. Yeah, well, this is fresh water at least, so they don't have to worry about the salt water stinging. But yeah, uh, I I cannot imagine. Just acting like mentally, underwater. I can't get over it. I could I couldn't I could never do it. Mm-hmm. Not something I can do. Um, they get the briefcase, uh, and Sawyer figures out pretty quickly that this is not actually Kate's briefcase, and he says, "So you wouldn't mind if I just take the case." 
Uh, and she goes, no, I don't care. Why? Yeah. Just tell him that. All right. So that's my case. It belonged to somebody. Uh, I guess hard to explain to Sawyer, maybe. Uh, but maybe later with Jack, like she's got to be a little more straight up. Uh, but when she says, I don't care. Uh, she just doesn't even put up a fight. She just lets him take the case right away. I mean, I guess she's thinking along this line of, like, the Lady Doth protest too much. But it is really interesting in that the flashback will see almost to the, you know, to the detriment of the flashback how much of a cool customer and the, the big acting job she's able to pull off there. I don't think Kate is a very good con woman in this episode between, you know, this uh, her trying to play off sort of like, no, I don't care about it. Her trying to tell, agree to Jack, like, oh, yeah, uh, we'll totally look at it together. And I didn't take the key whatsoever. Maybe she she lost a little bit of her smoothness in the transition to the island. But on Island Kate, uh, unfortunately, I don't think is as bulletproof, quite literally, as real world Kate is. I think that there there are it, what's frustrating is there are moments where she's really clever. And then there are moments where she's the exact opposite. Exactly. Uh, like there, there are there are moments here where like she like where she does like the sleight of hand with Jack. That's clever. Uh, but she gets caught. Uh, there's when she tries to finally get the case from Sawyer in a couple of minutes. She does it in a very stupid way. Yes. If she'd just been more more careful. If she'd just like been a little bit more patient, she would have been able to get it. And like, how much do you want to say like it's forgivable because it's driven by the the very understandably uh, complicated emotions that are tied up in this freaking airplane because it belongs to the woman that she loved slash killed uh, or the man that she loved slash killed. Wow. Uh, like, I guess like that's fine, but like at the same time, it's like. But everything we've seen from Kate should lead us to believe that she is smarter than the way she is behaving. So it's just a little frustrating. Uh, plenty of opportunities to talk that stuff through. Let's go to the beach. Uh, the tide's coming in, Mike. And this is a piece of this episode that I have I've really glossed over in my examinations of whatever the case may be. And since this is the first time I'm ever really taking a detailed look at the episode, uh, and again in the spirit of this may be the last time I watched this episode for a very long time, Directed by Jack Bender, mm-hmm. uh, some some remarkable cinematography in this episode, uh, some just incredibly impressive imagery of like the tide coming in, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the in the other section of why everybody is moving camps and the storyline about the fuselage getting washed out and what the real world ramifications of all of that were. But just the 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 lushness of Hawaii comes to life in this incredible way that translates the island into being this incredible character in this episode. And I don't think that's something that like an episode summary or an episode synopsis can really articulate is just how beautiful the scenery is in this episode. There's just some amazing, amazing shots right here as everybody's picking up sticks and going to move the camp up the beach. You just see some incredible looks at the tide coming in. Yeah, it's, and it's a really fun thematic thing as well. You know, we talk a lot about how Raised by Another and All the Best Daddies uh, are sort of symbolizing a bit of a paradigm shift. I know there was still a lot of tumultuousness going on in the writer's room as we spoke about, but this is when the show strayed a bit from, okay, these are just people learning to survive on an island and get rescued, to, okay, there's a lot more mystery going on here than we initially expected. And so the tides are changing, in a way, it, on, this water snuck up on them, and now they need to relocate, and it's unsettling, and it, it sort of has destroyed the ounce of, of homeliness that they had set up, or hominess that they had set up 
on the beach. So I love the representation of it as well, as well as the practicalities, which we'll, we'll certainly get into. And, you know, Jack is uh, basically should have like a second, I, I would say he should have a second home on the beach, uh, but that's going to get washed away very soon because dude has had to make so many house calls from the caves as of late. All right, so let's stop gawking at the pretty scenery. There's enough gawkers on. Uh, yeah, we have we have walkers, not gawkers, this episode. <laughs> yeah, everyone's moving. I'm proud of you guys. This is great. <laughs> uh, some ingenuity when uh, when push comes to shove. Finally, uh, but everybody's moving because the tide's coming in. Uh, this can't be normal. They say the tide's shifting. So suddenly, there's a lot of not normal around here. Uh, uh, is the is the line in this conversation between Jack and Saeed uh, as they are moving everything around? I appreciate that. Uh, clearly, a, a signal early on that this island is uh, much like the owls, not what it seems. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, I think there's a lot not normal around here. Should be one of the taglines using the advertising for this show, because like we talked about, again, with the shifting time... Good for our podcast, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I are very far from normal <laughs> the first five minutes or any indication. C, there. Count Jacula. See, exactly. It's a Exhibit A or Exhibit Blit. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation between Jack and Saeed. We'll get into it, but I think first and foremost, we got to talk about Jack's new shirt. Yeah, Jack's wearing, like, a new shirt. He's like, what, what does it look like? Uh, it's... It's a dad shirt, kind of. I think about it as, like, barbecue dad shirt. Like, uh-huh. when you're like, oh, I'm going to grill some brats out and invite the neighbors over. Like, it's that short sleeve button down that's, like, a little Right, little it's wide. all tight. It's a little wide, uh, but it still has, like, a, a good amount of room to, like, show off the figure. So, I don't know. That's the first thing that, that comes to my mind is Jack's barbecue dad shirt. I like it. Uh, they're, they're, they're grilling pig back in the caves. <laughs> Uh, They're done with the boar. They're ready to prepare it in some other styles. Yeah, absolutely. So Jack is going to ask Saeed if he could take him to the French woman because maybe they can get some more clues about what's going on in the island. There's others out here, aren't there? And now Saeed is kind of reversing the narrative. Yeah, he's he's walking I don't know what I heard. It was the wind. It was the wind playing tricks, Jack. Uh, a lot has changed uh, since Saeed has recovered from his trip to the French woman. It's so interesting because, I mean, this is sort of his own, like, man of science elements coming up. I mean, to see this, I guess, go full circle and that he was immediately doubting when Rousseau brought this up. He experienced the whispers. Even last episode when he's talking with Sawyer, uh, he says, I don't know what I heard. So it's still showing a little bit of doubt there. But now he's fully gone back into the skeptic slash full on denial category uh, of, you know, the wind jack. That's the wind playing tricks. There's blood on the wind and it's playing tricks. It's a very dirty mm. wind out here. Yes, very dirty wind indeed. Uh, and Jack saying, well, what about those maps you took from from the French woman? Can't you translate them? Maybe we can make some sense of them. And Syed says, even if I could, even if I could, Jack. Perhaps some things are best left untranslated. Uh, and Jack says, tell that to Charlie. And you see Charlie in, all over, sitting in a dune, not a boon. He looks very sad. And of course he does. He was just hanged from a tree by frickin' Ethan. And Claire is MIA. We get a lot of sad Charlie in this episode. Yeah. Like we talked about at the end of the last episode, I think Charlie is irre- irrevocably changed from what happens. He's going to turn into, like, angry dark Charlie very soon, but this is an, epi- an element of the episode that I personally forgot about, and I'm glad because... Uh, I'm not glad that I forgot about it. I'm glad that it's here because, like I spoke about, I feel like this is the one lingering element from episode 11 that I feel like truly gets its due 
And I'm very glad because this is a traumatizing incident for this character on several levels. And as much real estate as we want to give all the characters in this uh, in, in this series and in the big ensemble that's burgeoning to the point where barely any Quan stuff this episode for the first time in uh, or for the capping off a streak of several episodes. I yeah. feel like that's something that needs to be acknowledged. You know, we can't just brush it under the rug and bring up Charlie's trauma. Uh, you know, a couple episodes down the line. This is immediate aftermath that I feel like should have been acknowledged, and thankfully it does. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Boone and Shannon. Uh, it's going to be a heavy Shannon storyline in this episode. Uh, the beginning of a controversial storyline that I'm really excited to dig into officially here on the podcast. Uh, but it begins with some words of uh, discouragement uh, from Boone to Shannon that are worth revisiting in full. Let's listen to Boone coming to Shannon in this episode as everybody's moving on the beach. I'm glad to see you're doing something productive with your time. Where have you been? What do you mean, where have I been? You and Locke have been leaving before sunrise and coming back after dark for the last four days. What are you doing out there? Is he and your boyfriend? We're looking for Claire. I thought there was no trail anymore, that no one even knew where to look. Yeah, well, at least I'm doing something. Don't you see the way they look at us around here? They don't take us seriously. We're a joke. I'm trying to contribute something. You're just... You're useless. You're useless. So harsh. Boone is so mean to Shannon. Yeah, though he's a little bit self-effacing as well with the whole, we're a joke, which feels, you know, I think we underline a lot of like the Nikki and Paolo stuff, specifically an expose of the writers acknowledging the reception behind them. Uh, this is sort of... At least a little bit, uh, you know, poking the audience in terms of, I guess, the reception around Boone and Shannon up to this point and being very, uh, you know, lowly regarded to the point where Boone is foreshadowing his own red shirt equivalent fate. Right, right, right. And I mean, this episode is going to try and start, you know, they've already been working on it with Boone, but this is going to be the episode where they're going to try and start drawing Shannon in closer to the uh, the center of the storyline. Uh it's not really ultimately going to work out, uh, but they're gonna they're gonna give it a go here. Uh, so this is this is the beginning of that shift in this episode. Uh, later that night, because this operation to to move camps, it's gonna it's not gonna be done in one day, Mike. This is a there's a lot to do here. Yeah. That's a, Listen, a camp was not rebuilt in a day. Absolutely not. We're gonna see Kate is on the beach. She's playing with fire uh, because she's uh, she's that kind of she's very dangerous. Uh, and we we see her studying Sawyer from afar, and he's got the briefcase. He's got the Hallie Burton, uh, and he's got that slow mo walk. We've got more sl- more of that sweet sweet slow mo that makes us uh, so so happy here on the Down the Hatch podcast. Maybe it's if you touch the case, everything turns to slow mo. <laughs> you know, we talked about electromagnetic <laughs> effects with the hatch. Yeah. Could it be that there's some sort of weird time reverberations coming from? The actual maybe that's why the plane's so important. Maybe the plane is some sort of like, uh, you know, some sort of weird MacGuffin like time device that slows down the environment if you actually get a hold of it. I much like, like it. the hit movie Clock Stoppers. I like it. Ooh, yeah, this is like the Clock Stoppers of Lost. It's the Burton Stoppers. Uh, we get a flashback here. First flashback of the episode, and this isn't Kate. 
This is this is Maggie Ryan. Uh, Maggie Ryan, the photographer that is working on, in my opinion, one of the most boring book concepts <laughs> I have heard in quite some time. Photos of old theaters in small towns. I mean, it might look cool if you're a movie person. I mean, and New Mexico as this as Mr. Manager here, Mark Hutton, the bank manager, Mr. Manager, as he's going to be called. Uh, so don't correct him, Michael Bluth. Uh, he is indeed Mr. Manager. Uh, he's going to say, oh, there's a really cool theater here. You got to go check it out if you're if you're going to be photographing this stuff. And he should know if this guy is any if this guy has any savvy whatsoever, he should he should be able to see through Kate's cover here, which is like, oh, well, maybe I'll check it out if I have time. If you have time, is this your job to <laughs> yeah. photograph old theaters? Shouldn't this be on your radar? Maybe unless she's working on several other different types of coffee table books. But yeah, that would be very strange. That's like, Jack, we got a patient in the OR needs to have their lumbar separated <laughs> from their body. Oh, I'll do it once I have time. Yeah, I can't help you in terms of like what the lumbar is connected to, Mike. I can't. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I can't tell you what part of the BOTY. BOTY. I'm pretty sure uh, Jack was now asked to just outright take out a part of someone's spine. So maybe this, maybe Jack is uh, shrugging them off because they're giving bad medical advice. But yeah, and I also uh, got to admire Kate's. I mean, again, Kate's dressing. For the look, she's got the turtleneck and chain going on, Josh. <laughs> yeah, and she's on a lonely island in the present day, so it works. <laughs> it works. Uh, but yeah, so this is the, the this is the beginning of the flashback sequence where some robbers come in, and they're shooting out security cameras. They have incredible aim. Uh, I have to give props to everybody who uses a gun in this episode because they've got just like bang-on aim. Uh, with their, their e- They're all very eagle-eyed, these people. Because uh, they shoot out the camera and like a single shot, not an easy shot to make. Certainly not willy nilly the way they shoot it. Uh, and they're they're beating up on poor Mark Hutton. Are you the manager? Are you the manager? And missed opportunity for Mark Hutton to respond, saying, "I'm a Mister Manager." And then he just gets shot, and that's it. That's it for him. Do not talk guff to Jason and six foot five. I remember watching this the first time, and even then being like, "There is no drama here." Obviously, yeah. Kate's in on it. It's just very clear immediately that Kate is in on this. Uh, we know that she's a fugitive. We know that she's using a different name. Uh, there's just no chance that she's here and isn't somehow involved in the crime. So later on, when we're going to get the reveal that she's you know part of the thing and it's played up like it's this big moment, it's like, yeah, got it. Got it. Uh, so there's just like there's something- basically nothing that this flashback teaches us about. Kate, I know that there's some there's going to be some disagreement on that when we get deeper into the feedback. But uh, for me, I just I, I feel like it just does not move the needle at all in this rather boring rote bank robbery story. Yeah, I mean, the only way it could possibly move the needle is if we're looking at still this big mystery of, quote unquote, what Kate did, that this could have possibly been it until we get to the safe deposit thing. You know that, oh, she was a bank robber and she was on the run from the cops, which we'll find out is actually part of a laundry list. And speaking of a list, Josh, I'm, I'm wondering if we can work on something over the course of Down the Hatch. I'd get another power ranking to our ever-growing Rolodex. Can we do a power ranking, ever-growing, of Kate's aliases? <laughs> oh, not to be confused with Miss Sydney Bristow. Because uh, now yes. we, have, we have Annie, the Canadian runaway, and we have... Maggie Ryan, the theater photographer. Uh, Which do you prefer over the other? I feel like Maggie Ryan, the theater photographer, 
works for me, but only if she's got the uh, if she's got some expertise to back it up. She has to be able to talk about it conversationally. And yeah, she is good at shooting. She is. She's got great aim for sure. But Mark Hutton is going to be like, yeah, the old theater in town. You got to check it out. She's like, oh, I had no idea. It's like you had to have an idea. You have to research that cover story more. Uh, yeah, it seemed, like, seemed like she knew more about Canada talking to to Ray Mullen than than she knew about uh, coffee table books about old theaters. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I would say that Maggie Ryan is the more interesting job, but Annie's the one that she knows more about. Like Maggie's definitely more on the art vandalay side of things <laughs> in terms of like a completely random detailed job that she isn't completely on the up and up with. But I guess if I'm ranking this in terms of like. Not verisimilitude, but actual interest and, uh, you know, uh, excitement to the alibi, then I'm going to put Maggie above Annie for now. But I'm excited to see how this grows over the innumerable member of Kate flashbacks over the course of this series. All right, Mike, you're in charge of keeping track of this. Don't forget, we've got we've got a lot going on here and you don't want this (laughs) to slip through the cracks. Um, Back on the island, Kate is going to decide to pay Sawyer a visit while he's sleeping. Turns out. She does care about the case. In fact, she cares about the case so much that she's going to try and yank it out from between Sawyer's legs because Sawyer is sleeping with it between his legs. And I've got so many questions about this. Uh, Question number one. Why is Sawyer sleeping with this between his legs? That's so uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable enough. There's sand fleas. There's sand everywhere. Why are you sleeping with a briefcase, with a Halliburton briefcase between your legs? So that's question number one. Mm-hmm. Question number two. Why does Kate think now is the time to steal the case? Why doesn't she look at Sawyer, who's got a briefcase between his legs, and be like, oh, that's very weird, A, that he has a briefcase between his legs, and B, if I try and yank it now, I'm probably going to wake him up. Maybe I should play this cool and wait until there's a better time to take the briefcase. Kate is a woman who has clearly exercised incredible restraint and patience in order to remain on the run for all of these years that she's been on the run. It makes no sense that she has to go for the case right now. She didn't even know that the case was here until an hour earlier. Yeah. Why? I, I completely agree with this. And maybe it is to show, like, oh, she's slipping a little bit. Again, she's not as smooth as she was because we'll see in the flashback. She, like, knows everything down to the T to the point where she knows when she is going to turn, double cross the people who she was working alongside to get what she wants. It was a fantastic con. On her part. So I don't know why it falls apart so quickly for her here. Could the environment have jostled her? Could it just be the ramped up anxiety that she doesn't want Sawyer finding out what's in there? But shouldn't she know how impregnable the Halliburton case is considering she was traveling with the marshal and the marshal probably bragged about it? I would think this is just a completely irrational emotional decision but since it's so contrasted to kate doing the exact opposite in the flashback i'm just wondering what prompts such a quick reaction when it's she's seeking after the same object in both cases yeah but this is another case where like uh you know one step forward one step back so here she is taking a step back by going for the case it wakes sawyer up obviously clearly wakes him up uh and then he like tackles her and he has her pinned to the ground and she's saying, get off me. And he's saying, I hate to bicker about positions. I guess that he's on her. I don't really know exactly how it well, works. She, she, yeah, she, he like, 
she grabs the case and he like pulled her down. Yeah. And a- so she's on top of him. So when she says get off of me, he's technically on the bottom. Uh, but it doesn't matter to Kate because he's going to headbutt city very soon. Headbutt city indeed. And that is where it's a step forward because Kate in, in this episode does things that are confounding. And then she does things that are great, like headbutting Sawyer in the face. And she's able to pull that off a couple of times here, and it's wonderful. Uh, Kate getting, getting, uh, getting to kick the crap out of Sawyer, whether lightly or deeply, is always a joy. And here she gets to do it again. Uh, Sawyer says, if you wanted to play rough, all you had to do was say so. She says she wants the case. Give it to me. But he is going to flat out refuse. Uh, and given the interaction, I can't say I fully blame him for refusing because he did. She did just assault him and try and uh, uh, rob him in the night. Not the best do you, tactic. Do you think if she had taken a different tactic, maybe do a sequel to One Little Kiss? Do you think that would have been a better? I don't way want to, to endorse that. Have the case? I don't want to endorse that. I feel like that's not a plan I'd like to endorse. Uh, but I think that the the part of the reason why I'm so frustrated with with this episode. Uh, and even just reliving it, obviously, still the frustration exists. I think that there's a lot about this episode that is better than remembered, uh, but I think that the A plot and the flashback are about as bad as I remember. Uh, and it's it's because, especially in the past few weeks of conversation about Kate specifically, she's been a remarkably great character. And so, like, they just, like, deci- decide, like, very suddenly, it's just, like, kind of, like, they spin out on her. Uh, so it's unfortunate. What are you going to do? Uh, the next day... Shannon Rutherford, uh, not deterred from Boone's comments about her being useless, is going to tan on, uh, on the beach. She's on a towel. She's enjoying uh, some, some time alone. And I guess Saeed has thought a little bit more about whether or not the maps should be translated because he's going to limp up to Shannon. He's going to study Shannon from a light distance as she is taking her top off to tan Yeah, so that he's back. not in her light, sticks. Yeah, he's very con- uh, considerate of that. And he tells her, We're quite close to the equator. The sun might be stronger than what you're used to. And she responds by looking up at him, and she says, I've got a pretty good base. And, like, I gotta be honest, I'm feeling this. I, I, I hate to admit it. I, I fully hate to admit it, because I know it's unpopular, I imagine I might get roasted as though I am close to the equator and I have not applied suntan lotion. Uh, I'm feeling sparks. I'm feeling some sparks between Saeed and, and Shannon here. Well, I mean, from my perspective, from what I perceived in the community, because these are I'm two totally very good. attractive people giving each other furtive glances and sly smiles and little secret talks about great faces. And things being hot, how mad can you be? Well, first off, I, Charlie's pretty mad. That there's talk about great bases, and he's not involved <laughs> in the discussion. But right. <laughs> I, I personally never had a problem with Saeed and Shannon on the island. And I'm trying to rack my brain as to whether or not the community did at the time in the first two seasons where this was a thing. I actually really enjoyed the two of them. I thought they brought aspects out of each other that we didn't necessarily experience before from the more two-dimensional shades of characters, especially with Shannon. I think what's poisoned the well on them over the years was obviously how things ended, but I feel like if you're just talking about Saeed and Shannon on the island themselves, were they really that 
contentious or uh, controversial of a couple. I don't remember that being the case. This is the first real couple that we're getting on the island outside of one that was like already established, right? I mean, there's been flirtation between Jack and Kate. There was the Kate and Sawyer kiss. Jin and Son are established, of course, that that doesn't quite count. Um, but this is the first like official coupling that we're going to be getting is Shannon and Saeed. And this episode makes a case for it. There's chemistry. I think that you can really tell that Navine Andrews and Maggie Grace like each other a lot as human beings. And I think that that comes across in the performance. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't really remember how people felt at the time. I think that it was probably not like a massively exciting storyline for anybody would be my bet. Uh, I don't remember having like a profound feeling one way or the other, but I think you're right. I think it's like how it ends that really poisons the well. But we're watching this now, Mike, knowing how it ends. So mm. let's, let's think about the fact that these two, that Saeed and Shannon are going to spend some version of an afterlife together making sweet, sweet sideways love to each other for all of eternity. Why are we not kind of here for that? They're both wonderful. This is a wonderful thing. I think that I'm actually kind of here for it on this I, first I, episode of the two of them together. I mean, it's a little rom com not necessarily in the writing of it, but the fact that these two on paper seem like a complete mismatch. You know, here you have the conservative Muslim man who is used to torturing people on the reg, and here you have a sort of a spoiled rich girl, 21-year-old, who likes to suntan in the nude. It, it'd seem like those two would almost be like oil and water, but they become more like oil and vinegar in that they mix into a nice, uh, delicious salad dressing. Listen, I'm I'm totally here with you. I've always enjoyed these two characters together, and particularly... I'll be honest, I do not think Maggie Grace is the best actress on the show outside of screaming, but there's something that they do with the Shannon character. Maybe it's what playing off of Navine Andrews as opposed to someone like Ian Summerhalder just brings this new aspect out of her performance that I really enjoy as someone who's yearning to see more uh, from those types of characters that ordinarily have uh, been mired down in LVP points for a reason. How dare you about Maggie Grace, first of all. Uh, but I don't know, I, I, I guess... I guess I hadn't really gone back and 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 thought too hard about Said and Shannon as a couple ultimately uh, until we've really had to confront it, and here we are confronting it. And so far, uh, I'm open. I'm I'm open to this working out. I know we're eventually going to have a, a letter in defense of Shannon. I expect that that's next week. Uh, but for now. I'm all right. I'm good with it. All right. So the next day, uh, Sawyer is going to be, first of all, it should be noted that the reason that Saeed and Shannon are, are talking is he's going to try and get her to translate the maps. That's going to lead to a very funny scene that we will hear from in a little while. But first, Sawyer is going to be working on the case. He's still, uh, he's still on the case and he wants to open it up and he's having some trouble opening it up and we find out why. Let's go to sound number three. Wasting your time, man. If you pick the lock on a Halliburton, I'll put you on my back and fly us to L.A. You better find yourself a runway, Daddy. There ain't a lock I can't pick. What's he trying to do? Pick the lock on a Halliburton. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> the only way you're going to open that case is with pure force, man. Impact velocity. What the hell is that supposed to mean? You got to hit it with something hard, like a sledgehammer. 
or the axe. I just like. I know. No, go, go for ahead. it. Go for it. I I know that you know this isn't necessarily the oh you know it's 2005 when I guess this is almost the opposite something that really does not play in 2019. Josh Sawyer nicknaming Michael Daddy Daddy. Like, it just seems very weird for Sir to be like, hey, Daddy, help me open this case. <laughs> well, that's what he's known for. He's the, he's the, the father of the, of, the, of the newscaster. Right, but it feels like he's uh, maybe calling Michael over to help perform a different activity if he's referring to him as Daddy in this day and age. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Sawyer not knowing uh, what a Halliburton is, but Hurley knowing what a Halliburton is. Uh, when Sawyer probably should have some sort of criminal encounter uh, with his con man days with a Halliburton sooner, I would think, than Hurley has encounters with a Halliburton case. Am I off the mark here? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, listen, I'm not on the up and up in terms of Halliburton's involvement uh, on the day to day, but you have to feel like Sawyer... I don't know who he was conning, but you have to imagine with the way he was dressing, it might have been with, you know, some pretty up there officials who would probably be carting around their money in Halliburton cases. What do you think about this? I mean, unintentional or not, in-brand sponsorship of Halliburton. I'd be like, Halliburton's cases are great because you can't smash them open on rocks or drop them (laughs) from a tree and they still won't open. Free advertising. It's nice. Uh, I like the scene, though. I just I, I like Hurley being able to laugh at Sawyer. Is always good. That's always yeah. good. Uh, also, uh, I like Michael. Everyone sort of has interesting moving strategies. Michael seems like he made some sort of wheelless rickshaw uh-huh. where he just piled up a bunch of stuff and looks like a tarp and like two logs between them, and he's just dragging. He's working those on logs. the sand. Works on the sand. It's not so bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense with the guy who's throwing around the term uh, impact velocity that you know a bit about the physics of how to get things places efficiently. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as Michael says, uh, the sled, a sledgehammer or the axe, we cut to Boone, who's got the axe and he's bringing it to lock. Uh, and this is the only real hatch check-in we get of the episode. Just a reminder that this is happening, uh, where, uh, lock is, Boone's going to ask, like, isn't there an easier way to get into the hatch? And lock says something like easiest isn't the easiest way. Isn't always the best way. Uh, so just a little to be continued. We'll pick this up next week. Uh, but yeah. for now, this is this is where we're at with uh, with Boone and Locke in the hatch. Though Locke is uh, once again continuing his role as Samantha Semantics between his conversation with Jack last week and this week with his whole, well, Boone, was it no or I don't think so? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, you know, the taming of the Boone. That's what's going on. I don't know. Maybe it's the Mr. Robot uh, recently playing in my head, and not to spell too much of Mr. Robot Season 4, but Josh, it very much reminded me of a certain text message exchange mm. uh, after an interrogation. Yes. Keep it 100. Yeah, exactly. That's what all, that's all that Locke wants, is for Boone to keep it 100. Uh, the two zeros represented in the name Boone. Keep it 108. Um, R- Rose is going to come to Charlie. She says, hi, Charlie. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're not talking to anybody these uh, much these days. Yeah, welcome back, Rose. It's been a while since we saw you uh, left you sitting on that beach and walk about. Yeah, so this is the start of a, a little Rose and Charlie storyline uh, where she is going to enlist him in helping people move the camp because currently he's doing nothing but sitting. It seems like he's been sitting for like 48 straight hours, which is a long time to be sitting in one place. Uh, granted, he is, has been through an ordeal. Don't want to minimize the tragedy. Uh, but we'll pick up uh, what's going on with Rose and Charlie in a little bit. Meanwhile, 
Sawyer is going to take impact velocity fairly seriously. First, he's going to be bashing the case against a rock over and over again. Obviously, he has no idea what's in it, but can you just imagine if like one of the guns went off? Yeah, hopefully the safety, uh, Mars put the safety on before putting the guns in the case. This whole scene to me, I like it, but it almost feels a bit like Lost Gone Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Yes. With the whole like yeah. Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny of it all, especially when Sawyer climbs up into the tree and Kate's like, uh, you know, grabs the case and does a little bit of Roadrunner meep meep before running off. Uh, so it, it's fun, and you know, it's a little bit of levity in the midst of a lot of mystery and obviously a lot of uh, sadness as we go from the Charlie and Rose stuff. Just realize Charlie Rose. Eee, interesting, yeah, not just a connection. Not there, so great but, anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I don't know if it's too goofy for me, but I feel like it sticks out for both good and for bad against the rest of the landscape of this episode. Well, again, uh, step forward, step back. Step forward is Kate is patient enough to wait until Sawyer climbs a tree and drops the case, and that should be a perfect amount of time to run, grab the case, and cheese it, beeline it out of there, and get the hell out of Dodge, and you've got a case, my friend. But instead, she grabs the case and does, like, the lightest of jogs away. Like, fully takes for granted the fact that Sawyer is stuck in a tree. Uh, and I feel like it's a it's a huge indictment against Kate as far as her speed. Uh, this, this renders her a very slow person as it relates to Sawyer. If Sawyer can start from a tree and still beat Kate in a foot race, that's bad for Kate's speed score. Uh, so I don't know if it's that she didn't want it enough or if she's just not that fast. And I, if so, I feel bad for mocking her for not being fast, but I can't imagine that's the case. It's just another instant, uh, instance of, uh, there's a, the, the, there's a lot going on psychologically underneath the <laughs> script. I think, uh, that is happening. That is making Kate act in ways that don't fully make sense. Yeah, though, I will commend Kate, like you said, she uh, pulls off a Sawyer move here in tailing him without him even realizing it. And then when he's most susceptible, she pops out. But, I mean, I also feel like looking at all the Kate stuff, was she ever really known for her speediness? Kate runs! She's a runner! That's literally her deal! (laughs) But, I mean, I'm thinking about, like, we'll talk about Born to Run several episodes down the yeah, line. Yeah, she has but an like, episode called Born to Run. She's a runner. Right, but she but she's not able to speed her car away. <laughs> Poor guess. Tom gets gunned down. Uh, yeah. she, get, she can't run away from uh, the marshal. He ends up catching her. So I don't know. Maybe Kate's more of a, she's more a, as a person who talks about the run she went on rather than actually going on the run. She's an endurance runner. It's not about, she's not a sprinter. Yeah, exactly. She's, she's cross-country, and she travels cross-country. Marathon runner. Again, a step forward and a step back. She she butts her head up towards Sawyer, and he says, oh, you're not going to do that. This You're not going to do it twice. Uh, but then, she, then does she does it the does second it time, and she does it twice. So, you know, uh, the, the, the Jacob giveth, the Jacob taketh away. Uh, he says, if you tell me what's inside, I'll give you the case. Uh, and she still turns him down. Like, at that point, just be like, there's an airplane. I just want the airplane. Or or just do what you did with Jack and be like, oh, yeah, it's these things that are inside. Right. You know, like if, if and, you know, you could uh, like you did with Jack, you could withhold some information. You know, if, if you just say that, hey, there were some personal effects that, you know, uh, the marshal may have had in there that I, I want to take care of. I feel like that's innocent enough. But again, it's a situation where she tries to act so innocent and non-caring that it comes full circle and she acts completely guilty 
in not answering any questions about the case whatsoever from both men. Uh, all right. So he turns her, she turns him down. She's not going to do it. Uh, we get another flashback and uh, we get a hero moment from one of the hostages. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got an opening. I feel like I could take one of these guys out. And he's like talking to Kate and Kate's like, hey, no, that's very dangerous. Don't do that. He's like, no, I'm going for it. Leroy Jenkins. And he, he gets up and he charges at the robber and he's able to take one of the robbers out. He's able to get their gun. He slides it over to Kate and he's telling Kate, turn off the safety. She says, I don't know how to use a gun. We know this isn't true. Uh, the, the, the hostage gets overpowered once again. Ugh. Yeah, Trucker, tr- I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Trucker, and partially because uh, he is played by, I believe his name is Michael Vendrell. He is a stunt coordinator for Lost. Uh, for those of you that may have been keeping up with the Lost on Locations featurette, may have seen him in the very last episode when he talked through being doing the fight choreography for Jack versus Ethan. So it's always fun when productions are able to utilize, you know, uh, their behind-the-scenes people in roles in front of the camera. And so Michael Vendrell plays... Trucker, a.k.a. Big Boy, a.k.a. the wannabe hero who, had Kate not been in on it, would have saved the day. Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, what was, was he going to bank on the fact that Kate was just going to shoot somebody in cold blood? He doesn't know this person at all. It was, a lot, it was a, I think, a fairly risky procedure that went down here. I don't know that I love the trucker's move here. I, I don't know. I think that considering how ruthless and aggressive these people seem to be, you know, this is not a situation where, like, everything is calm. And it doesn't help that the manager is pushing back against the bank robbers, which is not a good idea when there are hostages on the line of, like, you're just going to kill me anyway. Right. Why should I open up the box? Like, do not do that! Because they could very easily just walk up to Kate and be like, bang, Great, I just killed a person. That's what's going to happen if you don't open up that safety deposit box. You're going to have their blood on your hands in addition to your own. So I can understand why the need for action is possible, especially, I don't know, I admire this guy as well, for he takes out, obviously, the more imposing one. I believe the character's name is Six Foot Five. He's a biggin. He's able to take down the basketball player of the two. And I think in a different situation, they could have at least... Uh, Kate and the robber could have at least like held each other enough up at gunpoint to get everyone else escaping. You know, she doesn't need to shoot him, but they could have at least been in a standoff where everyone else could have gotten out safely with everyone else disarmed. Well, Kate isn't going to do that because she's in on the plan and she's going to get like thrown into the back room by this dude bro named Jason. Uh, and, and Jason's like, oh, you don't know how to use a gun? That's classic. And they make out They're like, ooh. Dangerous, a dangerous development here in the bank robbery storyline. <sighs> okay, all right, well, back on the <laughs> island. Back on the island, let's check in on what's going on with Saeed and Shannon. They're both sitting next to each other in a tent. She's translating the map, uh, and we're going to get a little bit of a bonding moment between Saeed and Shannon. Let's listen in with sound number four. You never said anything about math. You worry about the French, I'll take care of the math. I can't do this. If you really put your mind to it, I know you can, Sean. Where did you learn to speak French? I knew this guy. This guy? In France, in Central Pay. Kind of lived there for a while. Well, they say that is the best way to learn a foreign language. 
right. Let me see. He made a funny, and she likes his funny. She liked his funny. Uh, again, if you're just listening to us, and if you're not watching the episodes, what you're missing there is when Saeed says, this guy, uh, and he turns to look at Shannon with this unbelievable look on his face as he presses his whole face into his hand and he leans his hand forward and his elbow forward and he is just sassing the crap out of Shannon as he goes, this guy, he is living for the San Tropez gossip, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I also it's realized... It's amazing! That- it is such a great look! How can we be mad at the idea that Saeed, this man we love so much, is going to spend the rest of his life gossiping and banging out with Shannon? It's, well, it's oh, gonna yeah, ba- be, It's gonna be great! Banging out secrets and banging other things out. But, yeah, I, I think that, like I said, these characters bring out other parts of each other. We really haven't seen Saeed be that sarcastic, I feel like. I feel like he was a very serious character in these first 11 episodes. Understandably so, because he was sort of the makeshift professor of the group, and then he has this whole involvement with Rousseau. But this is an opportunity for him to stop being a navel-gazer, you know, to let loose and have a little fun. I also realized uh, I came up with a a shipping name for Shannon and Saeed. Uh, And it's a little inside baseball, but I feel like for all the OG serial fans out there, can we call them Shannon Saeed? Shannon Saeed. Oh, God. That's awful. (laughs) So terrible. Sorry, I relied on outside help for that one. What are you talking about? Uh, Count Jackula strikes again. Oh, man. Uh, in the caves, we get like a very slight amount of sun, uh, where Jack and son are going to be interacting and he is going, she's got a, uh, a few plants and he's like, what are they for? And she, she simulates a headache. Uh, and Jack's and like, he says, cool. cool, got it. Uh, and that's when Kate shows up and says, Jack, we got a problem. Uh, he says, we have a problem or you have a problem. It's, it's an us problem. Uh, she says, you're the only one who knows about me. Meanwhile, Sun is overhearing everything. Uh, she's nearby, and they do not know that she can speak and understand English. Um, but also, do, does, does Kate know that Hurley knows, or did Jack not disclose that information? Maybe he hasn't disclosed that quite yet. Uh, Kate tells Jack about the case. Marshall has it. It's uh, got some traveling money, personal effects, and four nine millimeters with some ammo. Uh, that's a lot of guns, as we're going to find out later in season one that Edward Mars packed four guns so he could deal with Kate. Feels aggressive, even after uh, the, 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 the example that he makes of her in the season one finale. Well, I think it's sort of the madness of Mr. Mars, right? She's her white whale, and so he's almost uh, overcompensating. I would love to hear from somebody who has a bit more uh, expertise in international travel about this whole concept of him being able to check the Halliburton case. Like, is there a, I know, obviously, uh, TSA rules have become much more extensive even since 2004, but do you think they would have allowed that on the plane? I have like, no idea. I know he got by with, the, with an ankle holster, but do you think they would have allowed four more guns <laughs> just willy-nilly in a case on a commercial air flight? That's why I brought four guns. It's one of my least favorite lines, even though it comes in one of my favorite episodes. Uh... But he shows she's going to tell him we've got he's there's four guns in this case and Sawyer's got them. Uh, and I know how we can open it because I know where the key is. It's on the marshal. And Jack knows where the marshal is. He didn't burn him. He buried him. 
We don't know exactly how or when that happened, but it did. Uh, And Jack wants to know what else is in the case. He senses that this is not the whole truth, which is the name of a different episode of Lost. Uh, And Kate says, there's nothing else in the case. It's just the guns. Why are you lying? At this point, just be like, there's something that belongs to me that the marshal had. It's not of any use to anybody in the same way that I feel like I gave you the chance to know about my past. And I don't really want to tell you anymore. This is linked to that. It's very personally important to me. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it does matter to me. Would you be a cool dude and help me with that? And I'd like to think that Jack would be a cool dude, but talking it through, this is Jack, and he is a jackhole sometimes, uh, so maybe he wouldn't have been cool with it. But I feel like honesty may have been the best policy here. Right. I sort of go back and forth in this episode, and that will show uh, in our MVP, LVP points as to, like, was Jack in the right? Is Jack in the wrong to reproach Kate like this? Obviously, the we have a problem or you have a problem back sass. He's not, not great here. He's not great. Here. Yeah, he's not necessary. But at the same time, Kate is so unnecessarily withholding to him. He has already shown to her in this case. Yes, he has thrown some judgmental statements her way, including very recently. But like you said, she tells him, you're the one who knows the truth about me. Take notice of that whole tabula rasa concept and be like, okay, if you're not, if you're, if Ricard Blanche here, you're not going to judge me. It's just a small thing that he had for me. You know, she's putting way, maybe it's because, again, she's so emotionally invested in this that she is making it to be so much more important and so much more essential and so much more secretive and so much more dubious than it needs to be. And so, I feel like Jack is uh, taking a bit of Saeed here. He's doing a pretty good job of being the human lie detector. Maybe he just has a good sense of who Kate is at this point. But I will, uh, you know, I, I will give him props for at least being onto the fact that Kate is clearly not all, you know, the case does not just have the items that she listed. There are some mystery items uh, included on the invoice that she's giving him. All right, let's check in with Rose and Charlie. Charlie has agreed to help Rose on the beach dragging some stuff, and they are going to have a conversation about their current moods in the situation they are in. Let's listen in sound number five. Why are you smiling? Am I? You look happy. Well, I guess I must be then. There's no reason to be happy. Things are awful. They're not that awful. We're stranded on an island. No one's coming for us. You don't know that. Well, what I do know is something in that jungle that eats people. Just because we've not heard from it in a couple of weeks doesn't mean it won't get hungry again. And I know there's a person or people that are trying to hurt us. Charlie. And Nobody blames you. What? For what happened to Claire. It's not your fault. You did everything that you could do. And you came very close to dying yourself. Yeah. Maybe I should have died. You know what I think, Charlie? You need to ask for help. Who's going to help me? I don't know. (laughs) I I, I will say... I like the the Rose and Charlie scene later just for what it represents, and we'll certainly get into that when uh, we reach that point. But I don't know. I, I really 
like this plot line. I might argue I like this even more than the Shannon and Saeed stuff because it's bringing out a quality of Rose that we we had sort of been used to, you know, the the fact that she was still holding out hope that her husband's alive and that they might be rescued and you sort of have her unbridled yet simplistic optimism up against Charlie's newfound pessimism. And it's so interesting that Charlie was really the jocular type for the first nine, even, you know, up to the end of episode 10. And now he just seems like a complete negative Nancy. And both for the audience's sanity and for the character's development, I'm very glad that Rose is able to slap some sense into him, but in a sensitive way, pulling the Robin Williams from uh, Goodwill Hunting with the whole It's Not Your Fault. No, I like it too. I, I am not an especially religious person, but it is a, an important theme in Lost, and it's certainly a very important part of a lot of people's lives. And that's what this is going to build towards eventually later on in the episode is Rose and Charlie are basically going to pray together. Uh, and that's something that matters so much to Charlie. Uh, and so for him to, to like turn to God in a moment of despair uh, that he is in right now, I think is, is really sweet. Uh, and it's, it's another great shade to Rose's character. Uh, it's reinforcing something that we already know and, and admire about Charlie, I think. Uh, and it's a good way of dealing with the aftermath of what happened with Ethan. Uh, I think that I think that it can be wobbly the way that the the post Ethan Charlie is handled, especially in that immediate aftermath. But the immediate immediate aftermath here, um, I do appreciate it. I think it's a good storyline, and I think that uh, both L. Scott Caldwell and Dominic Monaghan, as always, do a really really great job here. Um, yeah, and, and I would say that it's also interesting looking at. I mean, I wouldn't say that this is you know emblematic of the struggle with depression, but I know that in my own struggles with it over the past couple years you know i I think that charlie's spare line maybe i should have died other than it being prophetic for essentially the entire action of season three with desmond i mean it's it's a little i wouldn't call it outright suicidal but it's definitely along the lines of like that what use am i what use is this world Do, do i even deserve to live in it anymore and i don't know maybe it's because of my particular sensitivities to it in the point that i am in my life but it didn't really resonate with me until this time around how much those thoughts can occur so easily especially after such a traumatizing situation and how it feels like you're swimming against a current a fierce riptide of depression that can take you over and make you feel like you just want to get swept under the water until water fills your lungs But Rose is there, and she's not giving him a life preserver, but she's saying, you just got to put one arm in front of the other, and you have to keep swimming, and you have to know that eventually you're going to reach calmer waters. And it's a really strangely inspirational message for this character coming out of left field in a C, maybe even call it a D plot of a lost episode. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, C plot, if you want to keep the C metaphor going, but it's ba- <laughs> it basically is the D plot of the episode. Uh, and it's good. It's really good. Um, we go back to, to, to Jack and Kate. They're uh, unburying the marshal. Um, and we get a flashback where we see uh, Maggie basically being like, all right, Jason, smack me. You got to make it look convincing. Otherwise, no one's going to believe it. So he does, and he throws her back out into the bank, and then he's going to give Mr. Manager three seconds to comply with his demands, or else he's going to shoot Kate, and Mr. Manager is like a very quick yes. He's like, all right, I'll do what you need me to do. Don't hurt. Don't you understand? She's got photos to take in this world, damn it. Don't rob her of that. I was going to take her to the theater. You can't do this. 
I now I'm glad that they acknowledge though I'm a little disappointed that they gloss over, you know, the whole burying the Marshall thing cuz we spoke about how one of the things that we enjoyed about Tabula Rasa and it even sort of eked a bit into Jack's attitude and walk about was how if we talk about emotionally draining situations how big that must have been for Jack to the point where Kat's, Kate says, you know, why didn't you burn him with the rest and Jack felt like he needed to bury him and how much that really probably still weighs on his chest doesn't help that now he's being asked to take a stick and uh, literally like unearth this skeleton from his closet or from the ground as it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He buried him. I mean, it makes sense. Like this was a big deal. This was not a nothing thing. This wasn't like a routine procedure. What happened with the Marshall and Jack? Uh, There's a lot charged there. So he had to bury the guy, but they dig him up, Mike. And I feel like everybody's reaction, there's like no real gravitas to the unburying of the marshal beyond just like, ew, gross, maggots, ew, nasty. I feel like there's like, uh, like I feel like the it's the ghost of Edward Mars channeling the ghost of Rodney Dangerfield. I can't get no respect. Like if he's hanging around and watching this thing, it's like, Kate, we had so much history and all you can say is, ew, gross, goopy maggot wallet. Come on. Yeah, at least say some, like, words as you grave rob me. Yeah, you, you're grave robbing me. Unbelievable. Uh, she, and then you lie about it? I you know. grab the key? You don't even tell your partner? Again, a step forward, a step back. A very impressive sleight of hand. But what Kate does not account for is that not only did Jack go to flight school, he was also an amateur magician. And he knows a thing or two about sleight of hand. Uh, For my next trick, I will saw the lumbar out of your spine. (laughs) Oh, man. I will replace your spinal column with a balloon. Uh, (laughs) And so he figures out that she's got the key, takes the key, and she wants to explain, and Jack says, don't. And at this point, I'm Team Jack. Yeah, I mean, again, she promised him, like, hey, we'll open this up together, and this is a breach of trust, in my opinion. And the things that she's she made him do only to lie to him still and keep him completely duped when he asked for complete honesty. Yeah, I feel like the anger was a bit justified. I don't know if it justifies the reactions he had to her before. There's a reaction coming up that I don't feel might be completely justified. But still, she's not helping her case for the case. Whatever that may be. Uh, we check back in with Syed and Shannon and all right, trouble in paradise. They burn bright, right? Like they're very hot. They burn bright. Uh, they're already in their first fight uh, as uh, Shannon can't quite figure out what's going on. There's something about a sea of sparkles, a sea of silver sparkles that change. There's something about blue eternity or blue infinity. She feels like it's all very familiar. Uh, but Saeed says, sounds like nonsense. Uh, she says, it's not nonsense. Her French sucks. My French isn't so good. And did you ever think after 16 years on Mystery Freaking Island, maybe your friend isn't so well adjusted? And Saeed uh, doesn't want to escalate the feud any further. He says, maybe this was a mistake. Uh, this is the point where, like, maybe, like, do I have to, like, I should, maybe I should revoke my endorsement of the Saeed Shannon thing because they're already fighting so hard. This is going to be a very tumultuous eternity. I mean, are we a team? Are we supporting any side in this case after the the Kate and Jack stuff? Because I feel like maybe Saeed shouldn't have said out loud that this was a mistake. Considering, I don't think he realized how much Shannon feels like she is uh, error prone. And the comment her brother made about her being useless is reverberating in her head. But 
I feel like him saying, yeah, I shouldn't have asked you to do this is maybe not the most supportive statement in this moment. Yeah, I think maybe there is a more tactful way of doing this. I think that that's the great takeaway of this episode. There's a, a ta- There's probably better, tactful, more tactful ways of dismantling some of these conflicts. Sadly, Saeed yeah. is not able to figure that out here. Um, so it's their first fight. Uh, speaking of what is not quite a fight, but a tense confrontation. One of my this this is I think my favorite scene of the episode uh, yeah. coming coming up. Uh, I just I, it's a, it's a badass Jack Shepard moment, and I appreciate it. Jack is going to come to Sawyer, and he's going to make his case for the case. Uh, and this is what he is going to tell Sawyer. Let's hear it. Sound six. Sawyer. Doctor. So what can I do you for? Figured she'd get you to do her dirty work for her. So what? We're going to wrestle for it? No, you're going to give it to me. Am I? Yeah. I'm just going to give it to you. Yeah. Why would I want to do that? Cephalexin. Yeah, go on. That's the antibiotic I've been giving you for the knife wound in your arm. You're right in the middle of a treatment cycle now. If I keep giving you the pills, you're going to be as right as rain. But I'm going to stop giving you the pills. And for two days, you're going to think you're all good. And it's going to start to itch. The day after that, the fever is going to come. And you're going to start seeing red lines running up and down your arm. A day or two after that, you'll beg me to take the case just to cut off your arm. That's a nice story, Jack. And even if it were true, I don't think you could do it. You're wrong. You're wrong. she tell you what's inside? Yeah, me neither. Hope you got yourself some jaws of life back in cave town. That's what it's going to take to pop this bitch. I'll figure something out. I know you think you're doing her a favor. But however she talked you into doing this, she lied, brother. Get those jaws of life back in cave town. I don't think they got any of those. Open up that bitch pop pop, Uh, quote unquote pop that bitch uh is not something that i remembered from lost as a line but there you go this is a really interesting tug of war between these two guys especially when you think about post confidence man first sawyer please stop trying to play chicken with jack please stop talking to the man who is able to treat you and being like Hey, I don't think you'd kill me. You know, he did this in Confidence Man, too. He holds his life in your hands. Like, Just be careful, I, yeah. He's got the yeah, cephalexin. Be, he's got his finger on the cephalexin. Like, even if you feel like he might not do it, and if he's brag, or, you know, boasting and lying a little bit, don't say it to his face. Again, no. tact. They're losing tact here on the island. But I love that, you know, they come in at loggerheads initially, and then there's this moment, like this brief pause where... They sort of come together, and Sawyer's the one who sort of extends the hand to be like, wow, she's a piece of work, isn't she? And it's a, a little bit of a weird way for like them to let their guards out, and Jack still keeps his guard up. You know, He is not completely truthful with him about the fact that he has the key, which I think is a great move. He says, I'll figure something out. He does not tell him that he has the key at this moment. But it is sort of a weird 
bonding experience for the two of them, if we are building up this love triangle like the writers are doing, this is a moment where the lines sort of fall apart from the triangle and I guess two points sort of acknowledge the third point and be like, yeah, this makes it a weird angle at this point. Let's make it a little bit more obtuse and a little less acute. A little less acute. Uh, Jack is going to come to Kate after all of this and say, we're going to do this together. She says, why? And he says, because that's what I said we'd do. You don't open the case together. <laughs> I don't think we're going to die, but we'd both be lonely. Um, all right. Yeah, Flashback. Back to the safe. Let's resolve the bank robbery. I really just, I, I mostly want to yada yada through this. Uh, Kate is revealed as not actually being Maggie. She gets the key to a safety deposit box. Jason is very affronted by the fact that she was all about just one particular safety deposit box. He is being conned, uh, and he wants to kill Mr. Manager. She obviously doesn't want Mr. Manager to die. So instead, she shoots Jason in the leg, shoots the other guy in the leg, then she she shoots like three other people's legs. Yeah, and I guess this begs the question, in the very beginning of the episode... Do you think Kate purposely aimed for Sawyer's knee? Do you think Kate's move is just I to mean, shoot you in the leg? I got I to gotta say, I am very impressed with Kate's uh, shooting abilities here. And again, we know that she's going to kill the smoke monster at the end of the show, right? Like she's going to be, she's going to have the, not the final blow, but if not for the kill shot, uh, yeah. Jack doesn't kick the man in black off the island. So she really the, does save the, the day. World- yeah, the world ends uh, if Kate, you know, his aim is a little worse, though. I think it would have just been amazing, along with the irony of the man in black possessing John Locke's body, if she did shoot him in the leg. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would have been good. That would have been good. I agree. Uh, but here she is. She's shooting people with like no no second thought. It's, it's you know, she's making the Terminator proud. Uh, so the, it's, it's really eagle eyed stuff. And then we find out that all she really wants is this envelope. Uh, and so that takes us back to the island where they open up the case and inside it's the cash, it's the guns, it's the bullets as described. There's a personal effects manila envelope that should have said secret on it would have been great. And then there's the envelope that contains the toy airplane and it causes all sorts of conflict between Jack and Kate, which uh, we can listen to right now with sound number seven. What is it? Nothing. What is it, Kate? You wouldn't understand. I want the truth. Just this once. What is it? It belonged to the man I loved. The truth. It belonged to the man I loved. Stop lying to me. Tell me the truth. It belonged to the man I killed. See, we can hate Kate, and then Evangeline Lilly starts her cry acting, which is, once again, two for two, so beautiful. And it's like, doesn't make up for everything, but I'm like, damn. She's, damn, this is... She's great. Like, any any issues with Kate in this episode have literally nothing to do with Evangeline Lilly. Evangeline Lilly is tremendous. She's fantastic. She's so good as this character. Uh, and I, I feel so sad for her in this moment. You can tell suddenly that, like, this whole thing, this this whole plain caper... The case caper, uh, it's coming from a very raw place. 
still think like better ways of going about everything, but you you fully feel for why she's as upset as she is. And and Jack just like really pushing that out of her. Not the greatest look. And also him, I'm more take a front with him leaving her after that. I know he doesn't have the best bedside manner even off the island, but like if she is weeping and you know, it seems like she told him the truth. I don't know if it's out of shock. The Matthew Fox's performance read to me it was more so out of anger that he ends up just like not even giving her like a pat on the shoulder. He just packs up and leave. That's cold. And look, maybe Kate does deserve a bit of a cold shoulder based on the way that she withheld so much of this information. But it seems pretty clear that the reason why she did that is because this is a very emotionally impactful totem for her. And that it possibly may slow time down as well. Uh, Her emotions are just like over flowing and kate is a character that we don't usually see i mean we saw her cry with jack and charlie but she's never done that in front of anybody before she's someone who is very calculating with the way she comes across in front of other people this is an extremely vulnerable moment for here for her it's also really interesting that kate and saeed apparently graduate from the same school of hey don't take what i say literally considering they both say like that's the person i killed that is the person who died. Like, well, you did. I mean, you didn't technically kill him. He was in the car with you when they were shooting at you. Right? I guess Kate has more responsibility, I think, for uh, for Tom's death than Saeed does for Nadia's non-existent death. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of the lost deal of uh, not filling everybody in on what's going on. You can be mad at it, I guess, but it's also just kind of the show. So I've I've got I've become calloused to it. Uh, right, and, I, and I would say I think. One of the things that really, and Damon Lindelof is even going to acknowledge this in an other that we're going to get to soon down the line, is that I think the reveal of the play, I think people were waiting for something, especially after a month. And I feel like while in looking in Kate's uh, timeline of things, now that we know about Tom, it's emotionally resonant with us in the moment right now. But looking back and watching it at the time, I think this was one of the first big instances of Lost producing a very frustrating resolution to an episode where essentially we unpacked a mystery box and found another box inside that box. <laughs> yeah, it is and a we're like, okay, box, yeah. so there's, okay, so, okay, we thought this is something that would lead to like what Kate did or what guides her, and it's a little tiny toy plane. Maybe Jack walked away because he's like, you can't even fly that thing. This is useless. <laughs> yeah, no, he was upset. I, c- I can't believe you didn't tell me about the plane. <laughs> I would have I would have opened it with my teeth if I found out there was a plane in yeah. there. I've been itching to get my fingers on the controls for days, Kate. You had a toy plane this whole time and you made me use a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. I wanted to feel the cool plastic between my hands. Oh man. All right. Later that night it's sunset. Again, beautifully shot. Uh everybody has moved down the beach. Everybody's kind of settling in, and we get to check in with a couple of people before the episode closes. First, there's Charlie who's gonna come to Ro- to Rose. Uh uh, he's he's asking about Bernard and she's insisting that he's going to be okay. He's still alive. She knows that he's still alive. And she says there's a fine line between denial and faith. And it's much better on my side. And Charlie cries and he's ready for help. He says, help me. And she pulls him in. And I love this line from Rose where she says, baby, I'm not the one that can help you. And that's when they, they turn up to the sky and she, she says a prayer. Uh, and it's a really, really sweet moment between these characters. I, I love it so much. It's, it's like it's like bringing tears to my eyes, even just thinking about it. Because I think what really brings it home for me is Dominic Monaghan bursting into tears. Because we had seen, you know, mopey Charlie. And we're going to see in the future angry Charlie, dark Charlie. But this is one of the only times that we see Charlie 
truly vulnerable. Even in The Moth, when he was, you know, going through withdrawal and a bit crazed, I feel like this is still the most raw we've seen Charlie, where, you know, he had kept all these emotions inside, and Rose has finally given him the permission to let him out, and just the way he, like, squeaks out, help me, ugh, it just tugs at my heartstrings every time, and it's just the beauty of her saying, I'm not the one that can help you, and they just take a pause, and she looks up, and the camera just pans up as she begins to pray. I mean, you can sort of assume the rest. And I love the idea that it talks about faith. I mean, we're obviously going to get into a lot much larger mythos about, you know, guidance and powers that will the island. But this is still an instance of us sort of connecting to the outside world. And we know Charlie's very convoluted history with his own faith. This is an opportunity for him to be vulnerable multiple times. And I'm sure actually it seems a bit childlike. The Charlie of old, who was an altar boy and is a bit of a child with his head sitting in Rose's lap as she prays to God for him. I, I think it's just, it's a beautiful scene. And my God, do I wish that this had become a much more focal storyline this this episode. Because I think it's just so rich in so many ways. Uh, but I think what we get is really, really, really good. Uh, it's just, it's very powerful. And it's it's really great work from both of those actors. Um, really just uh, often overlooked because I think the rest of this episode, or a lot of the rest of this episode is kind of, you know, whatever, at, <laughs> whatever the case may be. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's really, really nice. Um, let's close out here. Let's close out the, the, the episode. We're, what we're going to listen to is we're going to listen to the rest of the episode from that moment. Um, after Charlie and Rose have that have that uh, interaction together, the camera pans away to Shannon walking across the camp and coming to sit with Saeed. And we're going we're gonna to track that from the walk because one of the reasons why I love this as a sound to close us out here as the final sound of the episode is it's very music driven on a couple of different mm. levels. Uh, there's going to be some great Giacchino in here and then some excellent Maggie Grace in here as well. Yeah. And then some Giacchino to, to close us out. And I don't think that we take enough time here on the podcast to just like sit and absorb the music of, of lost. Uh, so just imagine yourself on the beach. It's night. Everybody has their own little uh, pop-up campfires. Kate's going to be playing with the plane by the fire, and Jack is going to walk by, very envious of it. Uh, Boone is going to be watching Shannon and Saeed. He's not going to like it very much, and Saeed is once again going to be transfixed on Shannon as we close out whatever the case may be with the following sound. A guy from Central Bay. He had this kid. A real snot. Who hated me. His name was Laurent. He watched this movie over and over and over again. Every day, all day, like kids do. 900 times. It was the cartoon about fish. You know, one of the computer ones. Why are you telling me this? Because the movie was dubbed in French, and at the end, there was this song. There's notations. There's song lyrics. And your French woman, she's just like Laurent, because she wrote them over and over and over again. What's the song? 
la mer qu'on voit danser devant des reflets la mer la lost <laughs> yeah no it's, it's definitely it's moments like this and i think uh, we sort of forget about it but first of all i want to talk about the the finding nemo of it all or it is a little weird that i you think abc uh, speaking of in-brand promotion would like want her to specifically mention finding nemo and i believe actually in the initial dra- uh, draft of the script not only did shannon reference finding nemo but she even went on to like mentioned the actors that were in finding nemo <laughs> and saeed still didn't get it yeah you know apparently. Albert brooks yeah, you know, Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, <laughs> oh, a, Ellen. I love Ellen. Yes, I love when she dances. Um, so, but I mean, what I love about this, and uh, shout out to Jim Fells for his video this week, uh, this episode is a little different uh, since there's a lot of recurring motifs from other episodes. He focuses more so on the diegetic music from Lost, where a song that's played on the show will make its way into the soundtrack. And like you said, just some beautiful stuff, not only from Maggie Grace's singing voice but it segues beautifully into just this very plunked out piano instrumental as it fades away from them and on to kate and jack who much like the lyrics in that latter portion are unsaid it's purely instrumental and the you know the the glances that they exchange at one another are furtive but they they can fill an ocean in terms of the emotions and the complications that are involved for an episode that i would say is problematic it's a really really fun resolution all right mike before we get into our 15 16 others and our feedback here and our 23 points and our 4.2 stars to award let's first take a moment to thank our friends your best friends mike the wonderful folks over at betdsi thank you for hooking us up josh this is now a lifelong friendship i would never shoot betdsi.com in the leg no we're robbing that bank together but we're robbing that bank together they're not robbing the bank for you guys because there's nothing but clean healthy bets going on with betdsi absolutely no we're getting that money together with betdsi kate austin style betdsi has a live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet on all the games until the final Whistle. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. That's double your money to start winning today. 
BetDSI has been paying winners for 20 years. It's top rated on betting review sites. It has a very user-friendly interface and mobile site. A user-mister-friendly interface, even. BetDSI comes with the fastest payouts in the industry. You simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. You bet on the NFL, NBA, NHL, boxing, all other major sports, politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything, Mike. You can use live betting at BetDSI to bet on all the games from start to finish, every play, every minute, right until the end. New members are going to get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. Double your money to start winning today. Once again, go to BetDSI.com and use promo code RECAP101 and get this limited time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. All right, Mike, you ready to to cruise into the others or the rest of the others since we already cleared one at the start of this podcast? Yeah, let's get to the Goodwin, the Juliet, the Ben. Let's get to the other others. Yes, let's go with all the other others. Uh, And Mike, as we often do, we like to start the others section uh, by by digging into the past, into feedback from other episodes. And typically, that's just looking back at the most recent episode. But Mike... There's a scandal, a bigger scandal than the arrival of Count Jacula in the world of Down the Hatch right now. Oh, my goodness. You ready? Here we how, go. How far back are we going here? We're, go- we're going all the way back to Taboo Rasa. Ah, oh, such symmetry with these Kate episodes. I know. So I guess it's only fitting. And this comes our way. This is other number two this week coming our way from Jordan from Wisconsin, who writes in and says, My dad listens to Down the Hatch and is following along. He has mentioned to me a few times that we may have something wrong about our good friend Ray Mullen. It seems that Ray Mullen is actually a pear man, not a peach man. My dad did a freeze frame of Ray's pantry, and it appears that the jars are labeled pears. Do with that what you will. Uh, Mike, this is a scandal. Everything we know is wrong. How can we be trusted if we can't even get the simple detail right that Ray Mullen's peach obsession is actually a pear obsession? What a pair of rubes we have been, Josh, for nearly 10 episodes bringing this canon along. Though, my big grand theory here for Papa Jordan, or Papa of Jordan, is that maybe... Just maybe we're referring to Pearman Ray Mullen as this universe, but in splitting off the sideways universe, there exists another (laughs) Ray Mullen down under, and he prefers the peaches. We got way too much business to relitigate whether or not Ray Mullen is a Pearman or a Peachman. Q, why not both? Yeah, exactly. Um, I would love some tacos with pears and peaches in them. But yeah, I I think the the fact of the matter is uh, Ray Mullen loves jarred fruits no matter what they might be as long as they begin with peas so maybe next time we'll watch it there'll be persimmons in that pantry all right let's move on and let's get into all the best cowboys have daddy issues leftover feedback with other number three coming our way from spencer y who wrote in because we were talking about uh ethan rom's power levels being off the charts super saiyan style uh and we were kind of wondering why that might be the case uh and spencer y had a really great take on why that might be why ethan might be so strong you ready for this oh yeah okay spencer writes in and says reaching into my full rewatch mental rolodex i once again have the most plausible explanation regarding ethan's fighting skills the dharma initiative members were hippy dippy 
while the others were barefooted followers of Jacob, who typically operate in stealth. Both groups generally resorted to gunplay during conflicts, and no one stands out as a brawler except for one specific individual. Enter into the equation, the only island-based person from whom viewers have even seen any amount of hand-to-hand fighting skills on display. Dogen, the Japanese baseball-loving other who was the master of the temple. Dogen taught Ethan his hand-to-hand fighting skills. Oh. What do you think about that, Mike? Do you like that as a as an official explanation for why Ethan is such a badass fighter? He learned at the knee of Dogen. I need a Karate Kid spinoff with Dogen and Ethan as Dogen's like, you must, you know, scrub the temple. Uh, you got to catch uh, the smoke monster with a pair of chopsticks. I, I need this to happen now because I am obsessed with this theory. The Dogen Dojo is a thing, Josh. I love it. I love it. I love that idea that Dogen just like trained up select members of the others. Uh, certainly we know that like Ben is pretty clutch with like uh, a staff. Like where did he learn his staff fighting skills? You got to imagine he spent some time with Dogen. He was brought to the temple, presumably to uh, to put some of the that man in black juju in him after he got shot by Saeed in season five. So how much time did he spend with Dogen learning how to fight? Uh, fun things to consider. Yeah, I really like uh, Dogen just being, I guess, the go-to person. Like, if the if the uh, the you know the the natives of the island are a little bit like the learning annex, uh, you just want to spend a little bit of time with everybody. I, I wonder what Dogen's people specialize in, other than his hand-to-hand combat. Um, all right, other number four. More about all the best cowboys have daddy issues. This is coming our way from Kevin Michener. Uh, I believe I'm. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. Uh, Kevin writes in and says, "I know I'm a little late with this feedback, but in honor or dishonor of Christian Shepherd, can we power rank the 815 survivors' parents by how terrible they are? Here are my top five. This is Kevin's top five list, and then you tell me how you would reorder it, Mike. Uh, in fifth place, Michael Dawson." Uh, Kevin writes, he may be out of practice, but Michael really has no idea what he's doing when it comes to Walt. Uh, in fourth place, David Reyes, Hurley's father. He abandons Hurley's, he abandons his family, abandons Hurley, and only comes back once Hurley wins the lottery. In third place, Christian Shepard. Watching him manipulate Jack this episode really made me hate this guy. In second place, Wayne Jansen, Kate's father. He's such a, he's a violent alcoholic and so bad that Kate blew him up. And then in first place, this shouldn't be a shock, Anthony Cooper yeah. pretty much stands alone atop the rankings. He stole a kidney. Uh, he stole a kidney, which would almost be bad enough to make him number one, but he pushed Locke out the window, and that guarantees it. Uh, how do you feel about those power rankings, Mike? I'm good with giving Cooper the gold here. I feel like he deserves it. The I won't quibble too much with this ranking. I might switch Wayne and Christian only because we see a lot more of Christian, and so his sort of Rolodex is a bit more girthy in my mind than what Wayne did. But I think if you're just going on like, I guess if you're karmically balancing out the actions like we like to do in the in the 23 point section, I could see why Wayne, who we see less of but does justifiably worse things, might be worse than Christian, who, yes, has done some pretty darn crappy things, including possibly killing at least one person. But as we talked about last week, we will see other instances where maybe there are some more redemptive qualities to him. I feel like Shannon's uh, stepmom, Boone's mother, should be on this list. She's pretty terrible. Oh, yeah. I guess I didn't even think about the the mother stuff on there yeah. as well. She's, she's rough. 
Kate's mom uh, sells Kate out after Kate does what she does. I don't know how much we want to blame her for that. Uh, she seems more like a victim in her circumstances. Um, Sawyer's father killed, killed Sawyer's mom, mom and himself. That yeah, but great. but is that his fault or is that Anthony Cooper's uh, fault? You know, I like mean, it's a, certainly uh, fueled by Anthony Cooper, but Anthony Cooper doesn't make him do it. So uh, I don't know. I this guy's he's, he's a good con man. I wouldn't be surprised if he was able to incept that idea. I don't know. We could spend a lot of time on that. I'm sure that we will over the course of Lost. All right, let's get into some production notes specifically here for whatever the case may be. We've already talked a little bit about the behind the scenesiness of this episode, talked a lot a bit about it. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about it. Other number five, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit as well already, Mike, um, about Lindelof's own view of the episode. And there's an interview that he did with Vox.com uh, where he crawled through a lot of Lost and, and gave his takes on, on some of the episodes. Um, and in that interview, which we'll link to in our show notes, uh, Damon described some of the intent behind the choices made in whatever the case may be. Select excerpts, uh, once again rounded up by the Ben behind the curtain. Uh, he points us to this quote from Damon. Uh, Damon says, here you have Evangeline Lilly, who is an immensely hard on her sleeve, endearing character who you always trust. Wouldn't it be interesting to just have her out and out lie on occasion, both to the character that she's talking to in the scene and the audience? And how would they begin to feel about her so that when things like the raft getting torched happen, she's a viable suspect? I think that was I think that what was really important to us was that we weren't presenting Kate as a damsel in distress, nor as a character who needed a male in order to thrive. We were just doing everything that we could we could do to sort of avoid that trope. Um, but in the season one DVD extras, and Mike, this is what you had referenced, um, Damon recognizes that the episode just doesn't really land with that <laughs> intent. Uh, in the in the commentaries, in the extras, uh, Lindelof says, that episode, I think, the audience became confused for the first time in the series about this little plane she has. She goes through all these moves to get it out of a safety deposit box, and then she goes through all these moves to get the same plane out of this attache case, which is currently on the island. The audience doesn't know what that means. The show has always walked that fine line between mystery and clarity. By my own admission, this is Lindelof still speaking, and certainly JJ's, you're going to have to fall off the high wire every once in a while, but then you get back up and hopefully you've learned from the experience. Uh, so that's Lindelof's admission that this was probably them falling off the high wire with the with the plain reveal of whatever the case may be. And then they get caught in a net in more ways than one. And now, <laughs> now it all makes sense. Uh, they walk that fine line between mystery and clarity, but we know that clarity has been kidnapped. So yes, that, with right. that missing, it's only mystery. I, this sort of begs the question, I, I know we talked about timing earlier, but I understand you know, as you talked about in the first portion here, Damon's intentions behind what he was doing with the Kate character. And I don't want to do too much of like, let's rewrite this episode. But do you think if they had taken these dubious aspects of Kate and put it in an early episode, you know, post Tabula Rasa, but before this, that would have landed a bit more? Because I do think one of the issues is we've had seven to ten episodes of Kate character development. And while this does feel like a development, it also feels like a bit of a shrinking of the character. Yeah, you know what uh, one of the cleverer things that happens earlier on in Lost is like something that makes Solitary such a powerful episode is there's a there's a scene earlier in the season already where Saeed gets the picture of Nadia. Uh, and so you know that there's something in Saeed's life that matters a lot to him. Uh, and there's a physical totem here on the island that represents that. And so you're already starting to ask those questions about 
So who is this woman that that Saeed is is looking at? Who is this person that matters so much to him? Who is this person that he is regarding so closely? Um, so that by the time that you get to explore that in solitary, there's some expectation, there's some thought that's already built into that. Um, Kate has degrees of that, uh, you know, with the, with the handcuffs, certainly, and finding out by the end of the first episode that she's the fugitive. But there's never, again, to, to, to borrow the word, clarity. There's never, like, a lot of... In this first season, anyway, uh, there's not a ton of clarity on like exactly what she did, exactly how bad it was, um, and 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 not that like you get the full picture of Saeed in Solitary, but I think that you arguably get like everything you ever need to know about him in terms of his flashback component, his off-island life. You do get that in Solitary um, in a way that I don't think that you do in Tabula Rasa, and certainly not here in whatever the case may be. Instead. Whatever that like Nadia is to Kate, you're starting to get a sense of that here in whatever the case may be in a very sudden peach jarring way. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that's part of the mistake that it just arrives that you're introducing uh, this mysterious case into the episode as like the central mystery of the episode. And for when you open it up, all that's in there is a plane, which raises so many more questions and doesn't even really give you any sense of a real answer beyond it belonged to the man. I love the man I killed. I think it just like leaves. It does leave you really confused and it really does end up feeling a little bit of much ado about nothing. Well, especially since we're not going to understand the significance from that plane until much later in the season, you know, until we get to, I think born to run is in the twenties. Maybe of this 25 yeah, episode sec- season. It's the penultimate episode before we get into Exodus. Yeah. So like even a mystery that's been set up here, it's not something like we had hoped with the Hatch or the Claire and Ethan stuff that's going to have repercussions in the next episode. From a character perspective, Claire's going to take this plane. She's going to kind of hang it, you know, have it hang, hang it up for about yeah. 10 or so episodes. And that's going to not necessarily... It's, I wouldn't say it stunts the growth, but I think it stops any sort of momentum that this episode was trying to build. And that might just be a folly of the ensemble storytelling that you don't want to necessarily make every episode centric on Kate. But at the same time, it doesn't lend well to what they're trying to do here. Yeah, totally fine by me if we want to ignore the plane. Like, I'm glad that we just like, kind of get back to business with Kate because I think Kate's almost immediately in the very next episode a better character. Yeah. Uh, all right. Other number six. Uh, we talked about this already a little bit as well. The beach move. The beach move in this episode happened for two very practical reasons, Ben Martell notes. Uh, the first was that the beach on which the fuselage set was built was actually eroding with seasonal tides. This was alluded to in All the Best Cowboys, and a practical example can be seen on the cable beach where Saeed sits at the opening of Solitary. If production didn't remove the fuselage set from the beach, an ecological disaster was likely. The second reason was that the original beach was right next to a major road, creating <laughs> filming challenges. When deciding on a replacement location, production found a beach that backed onto an actual jungle so that they would in the future be able to track filming from the beach location into the jungle more easily uh so lots of reasons for this to work out and probably didn't help i i don't know exactly if the change of location may have helped their airspace uh, but this is something that we haven't necessarily talked about but it's been pointed out by some of our eagle-eyed listeners like jordan's dad that in a couple of shots in these past couple of episodes you can see some planes flying overhead and no, that's not an allusion to, you know, anything about the tailies or any other possible survivors of plane crashes. I, I think planes just happen to uh, be flying over filming at the time. So maybe this is yet another uh, third, I guess, uh, s- 
third little spindle on the fork, as it were, to uh, to stick a fork in the first location. It's done. All right. Other number seven. We're getting back into the music. Uh, Beyond the Sea. Uh, it was originally written in French as La Mer. Wait, Josh, written... we're not on uh, season six yet. Why are we doing Beyond the no, Sea? Oh, that's a different episode. Different episode across the sea. Uh, somewhere across the sea. Uh, we'll have to remember that. Hopefully that will uh, will trigger a Lindelof in time for Across the Sea. Uh, there, I feel like it's low-hanging fruit. It's ripe for the picking. Or high-hanging fr- fruit uh, that we can shimmy up a tree to pluck because all the low-hanging fruit is going to be gone by the yeah, time Yeah, all those, all those pears have been jarred at this point. There's only peaches left high on the tree. <laughs> and just as a reminder, when we get to Across the Sea, even though it is the, uh, the anti-penultimate episode of Lost, it's the third to last, we are going to talk about Across the Sea at the start of Season 6. So if you're doing your rewatches of Lost and you're barreling through, I will just remind you that my... My strong advisory on how to watch the final season of Lost is to watch Across the Sea as the first episode of the final season. I know Trevor Roberts just experienced it that way, and uh, he seemed to he seemed to dig it. Uh, so anybody else who's thinking about it, uh, just uh, some advice there. But let's continue into the other. Uh, this song, it was originally composed by Charles Trennett in 1945. And while the tune was taken by Charles Lawrence when he wrote the English lyrics, the lyrics don't match at all. Trennett's lyrics are an ode to the sea, and Lawrence's are a love song. Uh, a single verse is enough to see that the songs are completely different. So this is a single verse in French. It translates to the sea, that one that sees dancing along the clear gulfs, has silver reflections, the sea changing reflections under the rain. In English, those lyrics are somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me. My lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing. The French version makes complete sense as something Danielle would write, given she's surrounded by the sea. Unfortunately for Shannon, the French version of Finding Nemo includes beyond the sea, not la mer. Uh, so a little bit of a continuity la merer. Mike. Uh, and speaking of the Danielle stuff, because they said that she just wrote it over and over and over again, which, as Shannon alludes to, may be a symbol that she wasn't completely all there. It reminds me a bit, and I'm speaking completely out of my ass here because I have never seen Twin Peaks, so Josh, feel free to correct me here, but don't they sort of utilize Mersey dotes in a similar way with a character just sort of like repeating it to the point of insanity? Uh, yeah, that feels right. <laughs> I don't know, AJ Mass might have to uh, correct us off. He's the record definitely here. the scholar. He's the he's the peak scholar for sure. I'm a peach a peach a peach. I'm a peach appreciator for sure. I was gonna say a peaks appreciator. Uh, I like my jarred Twin Peaks. Yes, uh, but speaking of the actual lyrics of the song, and I guess more so the Bobby Darren English version and the uh, the French version, it's so interesting that the song is uh, sung to Said because when I heard the English lyrics, the first thing I was thinking of was the aforementioned Nadia. This idea of across the sea, there is this woman who, you know, uh, is waiting for me at some point. And that's going to be, I think, one of his primary drives to get off the island to the point where he is one of the Oceanic Six. And they live in short-lived bliss uh, for a certain portion of time. But I think if you had to uh, ascribe this song to one of the characters at this point, I feel like Saeed would probably be the most appropriate. Yeah, he is the ocean. Um, speaking of water, other number eight, let's talk about that waterfall. Let's go swimming. Jeans on. Uh, Ben Martell notes that the waterfall and pond in which, uh, the case is found, it reappears twice in Lost. First, it's an expose where it turns out to be the location of Nikki and Paolo's lost diamonds. How quickly we forget. Uh, then it reappears in season five in the episode 316 when Jack, Kate, and Hurley return to the island off Ajira flight. 
316. Uh, and Mike, I, I have to confess that I there was a there was a part of me that wondered if that's the waterfall uh, where uh, where Jack gets spat back out at the end of the series uh, mm. on the other side of the light in the heart of the island. And so I went back and I watched the ending of the end uh, before we started recording today. Uh, and it is not. But yeah, uh, wasn't it like I some sort say, of like riverbed he ends up washing up bit, on? More of a riverbed. But uh, I was happy to make the, the I was happy to do my due diligence because the ending of Lost is beautiful. And I can't wait to get there. Maybe, maybe, maybe that a little mopey. I, I forget if we talked about this last week. Maybe was that riverbed? Maybe where they initially found the hatch. Ooh, wonder. Yeah, we might have Could to get be. some location experts on that. But yeah, it's, it's I guess it's sort of like uh, the lost and found waterfall. Where yeah. like if you're missing something, whether it's diamonds, guns, or people, just go to the waterfall and they'll probably show up. Rich, put it down. Something is waiting there. For Rodney and Billy Wallace in the waterfall when we resume our lost RPG. We haven't been in risk of spinning the frozen donkey wheel in a while, so we may just take the liberty of doing a lost RPG episode at some point in the near future if people want to hear it. Just let us know. We're, yeah. we're down for it. We're down for it. Um, other number nine, let's do a series Bible story of the week. Again, these are stories from the series Bible that never actually happened on Lost. And for this one, it is worth pointing out that at the time of the series Bible, flashbacks weren't intended to be part of the fabric of Lost. That'll make sense in a minute when I finish telling you what the story of the week would have been. Uh, and of course, I will scream uh, for emphasis on the capitalized letters while making the literal exodus to what will become their new camp and our standing sets. A thick fog descends upon the island, quickly separating our castaways from one another. Small groups are isolated by the tricks and treachery of the island, but also by their stupidity, (laughs) short-sightedness, and sometimes cowardice. As the unlikely pairings of survivors face their situation, they will learn a great deal about each other and themselves in an episode which serves as a conduit for critical character-defining actions and flashbacks! Interesting. So this was sort of like... A pseudo-bottle episode that also features flashbacks. I guess, yeah. Uh, I'm just sad that we didn't get the the fog. The fog on the island would have been an amazing episode. I, I don't know. I, I'm personally fine with it. I don't know about you, Josh. I've been in enough shows that feature smoke machines that I know that inhaling too much of that stuff is not great for you. Yeah, uh, we did a play called Freedom Bound when I was a fifth grader. Uh, and it's the story of coming to America, the American immigration experience. And I'm sure okay, it wasn't literally coming to America, was it? No, that would have been amazing. But I can't imagine that this was so much more tasteful than that would have been. Uh, just looking back on some of my memories of it, definitely some things that are a little questionable. Uh, one of which was the decision to when everybody arrives at the Statue of Liberty and there's a song that the, the full class started singing, Lady of Liberty, standing there before for me through freedom's shore past an ocean of oppression uh they have a a fog machine that's playing uh that's 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 working to simulate uh our steamship going through the fog of night and landing on america's shores and the fog machine the smoke machine uh created so much smoke that we uh we set off the fire alarm and we had to interrupt the play and everybody had to evacuate the theater yep happened twice to me in my theatrical career first in high school where we did les miserables where they decided for some reason it opens on a bunch of prisoners and they wanted to be the foggiest prison on earth apparently it's yeah you're you're getting it out of the way early right and then um 
when I did some professional summer stock, we did Kiss Me Kate, and Act 2 starts with the classic ditty, Too Darn Hot. And for oh, some reason, they took that literally and was like, let's <laughs> fill the stage with smoke and steam because it's that hot. Ah, uh, yeah. Smoke machines really are the worst. Uh, what if the black <laughs> smoke monster was just a smoke machine? Uh, I mean, that's what people thought he was at first. Yeah, exactly. So look, it's not too off the mark, and it causes as uh, much of a nuisance as the smoke monster does as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into whatever the case may be with our remaining others. Uh, We'll actually save some for even later in the podcast, but let's get through a few of them right now. Other number 10 comes our way from Megan Cherry, who writes in, Why did Kate feel the need to ruin her relationship with Jack just for the little plane? I mean, she could have easily said that her personal belongings the sheriff took from her are in the case and made up a story about the plane. No one would have questioned her little memento. Hey, Megan, I agree. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, I think the previous two hours of discussion definitely says that we agree with that. I think the the headcanon that we're writing is I think it's such an emotional totem for Kate that I think she gets a bit more reckless and a bit more uncouth with her approach to things. And unfortunately, that means bristling a little bit more and deciding to be unnecessarily duplicitous to Jack. Uh, other number 11, uh, in defense of Jack from Matt Konecki, uh, I have a theory why Jack was so upset when he saw the toy plane Kate was keeping as a secret. Do you think that he was overcome with frustration and anger when he saw it? Because being a pilot, he either didn't know what kind of plane it was or he realized he didn't know how to fly it. <laughs> or maybe he was jealous that it was a better representation of a plane than the leaf plane he made a few episodes ago. Uh, that's funny. I, I, I'm this... Uh, only, you know, uh, the Dogen Dojo thing might have replaced my favorite piece of headcanon, which is that Jack <laughs> continuously <laughs> wants to prove to everybody yeah. that he knows how to fly a plane. Uh, other number 12, once again from Jordan from Wisconsin. Uh, Jordan says, I'm keeping track of the characters who are not using bags properly. And so I thought I would mention in this episode, which <laughs> no, is amazing. I think, I think thing we've to be officially tracking. reached like yeah, the biggest incredible. stretch of lists. On, I love our listeners to death and the extraneous amounts of trackers is one are, reason behind that. We, we have, we basically have like a big community of locks and Kates, such good trackers. We are, we are 12 episodes deep into a hundred plus episode run. So we've got a lot of time to, to track things weirdly jordan is tracking the characters not using bags <laughs> properly uh and says i thought i would mention in this episode that kate has a bag with a strap made from an airline seatbelt. i think it's pretty cool uh, and ben says at the start of the episode you could actually see that the strap includes the actual buckle part of the seatbelt. that is cool props to the props yeah it makes sense kate is crafty she was able to make her own curtains after all so i think it makes sense that if loss had taken place nowadays, she would have gone back from uh, 815 and opened her own Etsy shop with the fame mm-hmm. she has. Yeah. Uh, Down Servo writes in for other number 13. First of all, reports zero dudes in this episode. There's really only the one Hurley scene, so not a surprise. Uh, Down writes in and says, have you ever had anything you couldn't open no matter how hard you tried? Um, Mike, I believe... Uh, that you very recently aired some of this, uh, some of this uh, hard to open dirty laundry with your wife Angela on Twitter. No, yeah, I mean, uh, I opened very up topical in, in the open air for some unopened products. Uh, yes, yeah, so my lovely wife Angela got a big bottle of olive oil from Trader Joe's because she's Italian, so we love to go through that stuff, and we're unable to open it now. Um, my The trick that I personally always use is if I have a rubber band available, you wrap it around that cap and you're able to twist it off because basically one of the reasons why you sort of grind your hands to nubbins 
in fealty opening up things is because your hand isn't able to get friction. If you put a rubber band over it, it automatically creates friction. Uh, but apparently I discovered we are a rubber bandless household. So I am not able to use my life hack on this bottle of olive oil. And it sits there staring at us on the counter, just mocking <laughs> my lack of handsiness. Amazing. I like it. Uh, I I take a grapefruit spoon and I I shove it like a little bit under the lid and use it as some leverage. And that tends to like pop the thing pretty easily. That's my move. All right. I, I know we definitely have one of those. Uh, so maybe I'll try that when we get off the line also, and report you could, back. You could you could you could sneak a rubber band into your house. No one's paying attention. I don't know. You've got, I don't a, lot, know. You've got a lot going on. You've got a lot going My on. My dog might could... search me. She might no, be trained I... to like a TSA dog. No, I think that you could get a rubber band in there. Illegal contraband. Contraband. Contra rubber band. Contra rubber band. I believe in you. Um, all right. Well, we've got more others. We want to get uh, into those, actually, as we're talking about rating the episode itself. Really quickly, we'll just note, of course, Jim Fells' video is up, charting the music of this episode. Always worth a watch. We'll link to it in our show notes. And Mike, also, we got to shout out the great Sammy Kappel once yes! again, whose illustrative journey through Lost. Uh, currently, she's developing. She's drew an amazing Saeed. She's currently developing Sawyer uh, as we are recording. This and that looks like a really, really great work of art. Uh, but she also drew you and me, the Hatch Boys. Uh, so we'll we'll link out to that if you haven't seen it. But it's a great illustration of Mike and I with a Dharma logo in the background, which Sammy, who is working her way through Lost for the first time, confesses she has no idea <laughs> what the Dharma logo is yet, but knows it's important. Um, I think that this is great, Sammy. Let's make T-shirts. I feel like this yeah, is uh, the fish, official down the hatch apparel if you're up for it sammy let us know and if anybody listening to this would be down for some down the hatch apparel help us keep the lights on here in uh down the hatch that would be that'd be fun to do yeah because otherwise we've been pressing a button every 180 <laughs> minutes to keep the lights on it's a lot of minutes a lot of minutes all right well let's get into the 23 points before we finish up the others and do the 4.2 stars uh 23 points of course we are uh we're tracking uh the mvps and the lvps of each episode of lost all along the way here on down the hatch this week i'm giving out two mvp points mike is giving out three mike is giving out two lvp points and i am giving out three uh there's a little bit of controversy I saw uh, on Twitter, um, uh, good cousin John Densford, uh, pretty upset with the way that we've been treating Jack. Uh, I've seen I've seen some chatter of some people who are very upset with some of the ways we uh, allocate our MVP and LVP points. So those people always say, get your own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, Start I, your own MVP listen, I, I don't think we're not necessarily uh, unreceptive to the idea that people want to send in their own MVP or LVP points, but this is just the thoughts with Josh and I. And I'm uh, closed off to it. I'm closing well, it down. Spoiler alert for Jack this week: uh, he's he balanced out for me. I, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll I'll keep it at that. All right. Okay. Well, let's get into it first. A note, uh, uh, an accounting error, uh, in which uh, we thought that Charlie only had two MVP points. It turned out that he had three. So we've knocked Charlie back up to where he rightfully is supposed to be at three. The current standing coming into whatever the case may be, Kate is still the pack leader at seven. Saeed and Locker tied at four. Jackson and now Charlie. They are tied in third place with three points apiece. Uh, bringing up the rear, uh, really the story has been how far can Sawyer go uh, as far as the main characters. Sawyer is at negative three. Michael as well, negative three. Thomas, the terrible Claire uh, uh, baby daddy, is at negative three. Maybe he should be uh, in the parent Randy. ranking. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely on the uh, far bottom. Uh, Randy Nations, negative three, and the leader of the LVP section as it stands is Christian Shepard. Uh, we will, uh, of course, all of this is in the show notes so that you can track it. Mike, uh, give us your first MVP of the episode. This is going to be a little weird because, again, uh, she was subjected to a C or D plot, but I'm going to say welcome to the rankings, Rose. Oh, uh, yeah. She was like able it. to provide... You know, really hefty emotional support to the one person who needed it the most, who nobody else was able to really break into or acknowledge. I, I still absolutely love everything she's done in this episode. And look, there's only a few and far between opportunities to acknowledge Rose. I believe this actually might be her last appearance in season one until Exodus. So wow, I, I really? got to I got to strike while that iron is hot. Yeah, I, I my memory of where we see Rose next uh, is basically non-existent, so I couldn't correct you even if I wanted to, and I don't. Uh, and I love I love Rose finally making it onto here, and I think it's very well deserved. You know what else is well deserved? Getting Shannon on the board with an MVP. Yeah, uh, I think Shannon Rutherford absolutely earns the plus one. I think that she's already relatively deep into the into the LVP category. Yeah, she's currently standing at a negative two, so she's going to go to negative one this week. Okay. Uh, Shannon scores a point. She's able to translate the French. Uh, she sings so beautifully, and uh, I almost gave Saeed an MVP point this week, though he does like kind of like lose his cool with Shannon in a way that I didn't appreciate. Um, but he's very, very close to getting an MVP point from me this week. Uh, but Shannon, at the very least, I think that this is her strongest episode yet. Props where it's due, not just to the seatbelt uh, bag, but also to Shannon and her fantastic singing voice and uh, embarking on this incredible romance with Saeed Jarrah. I am going to give a point here, and this is out of sympathy, because it's not exactly for the stuff that he does this episode, but from an emotional perspective, I'm going to give it to Charlie, just because the situation that he's in and the fact that his storyline, as I spoke about before, really struck me with the stuff that I've been going through the past couple of uh, years, this rewatch around. And, you know, I feel like there was so much stuff happening in last episode that we couldn't really give him his due for, you know, not only surviving, but sort of having to live with that trauma. And the fact that he was able to actually break down and reach out for help at the end, I feel like is a, a big milestone in his eventual recovery, even if we're not necessarily a huge fan of the final product. So here you go, Mr. Pace. I'm into it. Um, all right. My uh, second of two MVP points that I have to award this week. I know we've ragged on her quite a bit, but as we said, two steps forward, one step back all along the way here for Kate Austin. Uh, whatever the Kate may be, she's she is going to get an MVP point for me. Uh, and the, the reason being Evangeline Lilly is so excellent in this episode, mm. uh, as she always is. That cry acting at the end of the episode, she does the best she can with a wobbledy, wobbledy drop script. Uh, and... She base butts Sawyer two times, and it's fantastic. Uh, her plans are, like, half-baked, but the parts that are good are very good. And the real reason, above all else, is uh, her eagle-eyed sharpshooting at the bank. Uh, once mm. she finally decides to start squeezing the trigger, uh, she is able to, to do some serious damage. Uh, so Kate definitely earns an MVP point from me, and probably won't come as a shock that it, she'll negate it <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is very much the, the the you know confidence man thing where we're like, hey, we'll give Josh Holloway a point, but then we'll subtract Sawyer points because right. of what he did out the island. So we're trying to separate that actor from the character. Speaking of the bank, I'm going to give my final MVP point 
to my man trucker jeez really he tried to bust a hold up like that's that has to be worthy of some sort of mvp recognition he endangered everybody's lives so did the bank manager yeah mr manager probably deserves an lvp point (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I honestly, uh, there are a lot of candidates this week to spoiler alert for LBP, and he was definitely on my short list. But the fact that he was able to, I guess, get Kate what she wanted and escape with his life. But uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I'm, I'm going with Trucker, personally. I think that what he was able to do was brave and a truly heroic moment. And I'm going to acknowledge Michael Ventrell for all the stuff that he does behind the scenes as well. He's not going to be seen in front of the camera a lot. Fair so enough, this is a good way enough. to sort of, no, much like we talk I, about with Kate. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I had, uh, so, so to launch into the LVPs, I was originally going to dock two points from Kate. Um, but then I realized I didn't dock a point from the manager and maybe Mr. Manager deserves to get docked. Uh, I feel like he's, he's endangering people here. Uh, he's, uh, he's easily conned by Kate, uh, with the whole, uh, really thinly disguised movie theater poster uh, photographer job that she's talking about that doesn't make any kind of sense when held up under scrutiny. Uh, So I'm going to take a point away from Mr. Manager, and I'm actually only going to take one point away from Kate. So she walks away from whatever the case may be as a wash. Mm. She's just going to be fine, unless you're taking points away from Kate. No, I think that we've sort of talked through it. And look, uh, I think that putting her, considering how many positive points we've given her in the past, I feel like it is a harsh punishment for her to come out with a goose egg for one of her episodes. Yeah, yeah. So I think that she just sits at a at a zero. And just to spoil my my third LVP point, just got to give it to the bank robbers because they're all terrible. Extra credit, extra credit to Jason specifically. Yeah, Jason number one. Uh, it's Jason. Jason and the bank robbers are going to get a negative one. <laughs> yeah, the worst band name ever. Yeah. yeah. So you've got you've got two. You can dole out how many? Uh, who's getting who's getting which this week? All right. So I'm going to give one to Sawyer. Uh, because or Sawyer, I, he's just so freaking pervy in this he'll episode. Rise, though he'll rise the ranks eventually. It's eventually, but like <laughs> so season one, Sawyer isn't great, guys, and yeah. I just think. Like, all the put-ons to Kate. I've been very vocal on this podcast about how that's one of my least favorite thing beats that they keep going back to in Lost. And while he does have some playfulness, I was just not a big fan of all the comments. Plus, he went swimming in jeans! Yeah, he did. Yeah, that definitely deserves... <laughs> Frankly, that made <laughs> warrant minus two. <laughs> <laughs> one for each leg of those jeans yeah, that he exactly. put on. exactly, yeah. Uh, but no, I'm going to give another one here. I was between two and look... I was really debating Jack because of the ad, the guff that he gave Kate a lot, but I do feel like he was justified enough in her lying to him to make it a wash this week. So I'm giving my other LVP point to Boone. Unfortunately, Shannon moves up, Boone moves further back down. He is withholding information. He's not even going to get his story straight because I believe next week their story is going to be that they're hunting boar, not that they're finding Claire. And him just really piling on Shannon when she doesn't need it is a low blow for Mr. Boone. Okay, so some updates to the rankings. Really, in the MVP category, the only major movement is that Charlie is now in that second place tier with Locke and Saeed with four points. Kate remains untouched because she gains a point and loses a point, which means she moves nowhere. So she's still at the top. Ironic for Kate, who loves to run everywhere. (laughs) 
I think that that's a fairly good outcome for Kate coming out of this episode. And I really do think that the performance saves her, as it often does when it comes to Kate. I know that there are a lot of Kate detractors out there, but I think Evangeline Lilly is so good and we don't remember that often enough. And especially in an episode like this where they're not doing her any favors, uh, the fact that she is able to be as endearing as she is, I think is a real testament to her as an actress. Uh, and then in the negatives uh, in the LVP category, I guess the, the story is that Shannon is is closer to neutralizing her karma uh, and Sawyer is sinking deeper. He is now tied with Christian Shepard as negative four as the the title holder in the LVP category. Um, Let's rank this episode, Mike. Let's go into the 4.2 stars section. And we saved the rest of our others here because people are weighing in on this. We talked about this coming into this week is whatever the case may be the worst episode of Lost or in the conversation for being the worst episode of Lost. And we have some people arguing in favor of that argument and others who are saying no way, Jose. Uh, And let's start with Scott French, who these people are are people who are weighing in on Lost uh, on whatever the case may be as an especially bad episode episode of Lost. Scott French writes, while whatever the case may be is the bottom of my ranking so far, just below the other Kate-centric episode, I'd argue that its biggest fault is the absolute halt in season one's pacing, just like how Across the Sea paused and detracted from the major deaths in its previous episode. Case completely abandons the recent major events of Ethan, Claire, and The Hatch. If this same episode happened before those big reveals and you sprinkle in a single minor bigger story reveal at the end, then I wonder if it would be better regarded. Um, Eric Divestein chimes in and says, Some like to criticize Lost for not answering the mysteries they set up. However, in whatever the case may be, a mystery is set up that will eventually be fully and appropriately answered. It's just too bad that everything about this mystery is inconsequential, uninteresting, and uninspired. And then Elizabeth writes in and says, I always skip whatever the case may be because it's so stupid. Kate commits felony murder to get a toy airplane is just so unbelievable. Plus, Jack is a total shit in this episode. Those are Elizabeth's arguments in uh, against whatever the case may be. I don't think Kate commits felony murder, but she does kneecap some people, which isn't especially cool. I don't know. Maybe the the guys bled out before <laughs> true. We don't know. the ambulance could get to him. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So some 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 cases in uh, against the idea that whatever the case may be is Lost's worst episode for other number 15 coming our way from your friend and mine, the great Jessica Lease. Jess writes in and she wrote in on Twitter, whatever the case may be is worse than the Bai Ling tattoos episode. At least it tries to answer a question everybody cared about. Uh, and I responded to Jess on Twitter saying, I do think that whatever the case may be is a worse episode than Stranger in a Strange Land, which is one of my hot takes when Ooh. it comes to Lost. Uh I think I'll, I'm going to I'm going to put a pin in that. Let's reevaluate yeah. that. We've got a lot of time in the future to get to Stranger in a Strange Land. And I have arguments in favor of it, but I have to watch the episode and pick it apart before I I, I know if that's really the, the actual position or if it's just Wiggler doing troll face. Um, Lindy Steiner writes in and says, I've seen people say it's the worst episode of Lost, and I just don't think it was that bad. My favorite parts were Sawyer trying to open the briefcase and Saeed's reaction to Shannon when she talks about the French guy she dated. Absolutely true. That is a <laughs> really wonderful <laughs> scene. Uh, and then John Krause writes in and says, uh, this episode is full of nice character moments and interactions. We get some Rose for the first time in several episodes. We get Charlie coming to terms with his survivor's guilt. We get Michael and Hurley and Walt joking around. It's all nice stuff. We get character development. Charlie's beginning to get in touch with his faith again. Only seven episodes after he scoffed to Locke at the idea of praying. Boone is... Boone has begun to feel he has a sense of purpose. Shannon begins to deal with her fears of being useless. The episode also sets up future developments. We get sinister aspects of Locke. Saeed and Shannon start their relationship, which is in quotes. Uh, We get more development on Rousseau and her insanity. 
The tide coming in leads to the end of the fuselage and the beginning of the new beach location. All these things have ramifications on the future of the show. I really think this episode functions as a bit of a cool down after three huge mythology high octane episodes. Gives us a chance to check in on all the characters and it starts to set up the rest of the season. Uh, So those are arguments in favor of and against whatever the case may be. Um, Mike, how does that factor into your accounting of the episode in the end? Because we've reached that moment where we got to do it. Uh, Where does this episode land for you? So I agree with a lot about what John talked about in terms of going through how there is character development. There are fun character moments. I will note those statements only apply to two storylines out of four. And I've expressed on this podcast earlier, uh, and I'll say it again here, that in this episode, I really like the Shannon and Saeed stuff, and I love the Rose and Charlie stuff. But that is half the episode, if you even call it that. And I think it's the the C&D stuff. Exactly. And the A and B stuff is a bit of a D and an F, to be quite honest. I think we've sort of talked about how it doesn't fall at a, uh, you know, in a great period. I-, I think that unfortunately the development of Kate almost feels like a regression. I can appreciate certainly what Damon was intending here, but, but I think, uh, appreciation does not necessarily mean enjoyment. And I personally feel that, look, I really liked half the episode, so it should get half the points. Whatever the case may be, gets a 2.1 okay. from me. From you. Okay. Um, interesting. So so I've been going back and forth on this a lot. Uh, I've, I've been really thinking about this, and uh, it, it's hard, because I think that I've been hard on this episode. I definitely do. I think that I have, I've, I've given it more crap than it deserves. Uh, my question is how much more crap uh, than it deserves uh, versus how much is like actually like an accurate amount uh, of hate that this episode should get. I fully agree with you, Mike, that the A and the B storylines are not very good. They are, if they're saved at all, they're they're mostly saved by Evangeline Lilly being a really great actress. Um, there's some funny stuff in the interaction with Sawyer at the start of the episode. Uh, I really do, as I said, I love that scene between Jack and Sawyer, and I love that line, she lied to you, brother. Uh, you know, I think, I think that that's great, and I love the threat from Jack, I think is pretty good. Um, and I, and I, I, I think that the side and Shannon stuff is better than I remembered it. Uh, it's really, really funny. I love the Rose and Charlie storyline. I think the music is great in this episode. I think the scenery is great in this episode. Um, but at the very best, I think what you could say about whatever the case may be is it's an average episode of Lost. And mm-hmm. I think that that's probably, for me, still being a little too kind. Um, and I'm trying to think of, like, what does an average episode of Lost look like in the numbers? Of course, you know, the way that we do this, it's a scale of 0 to 4.2 is what we are ranking these episodes on. I give a score. Mike gives a score. The audience gives their scores, and we average that together. And we average those three data points for a final fourth total, which is our down the hatch rating. Um, and for a while, I was living at 2.3. Because uh, I think 2.3, it's a number 23. Uh, that feels like that should be the threshold of an average episode of Lost. Um, 
and and when I say average, I don't mean like the typical episode of Lost, the standard episode of Lost, because as you've seen from me, I'm giving out 4.2s fairly liberally. <laughs> I'm giving high threes very, very liberally. So I would say like an average episode of Lost for me is going to be like a 3.5, something like that. But just like an average episode of television for me, I would I would like call it a 2.3. And I think that this is a below average episode, but I don't think it's severely below average. Mm. Um I think it's I think it's better than some that we will encounter uh, for all of those reasons, especially like the historical context, I think helps explain why it is the way that it is, but doesn't necessarily make it more palatable. Right. Like, I yeah. think like I, I can I can appreciate the fact that the episode is not as strong as some of the others and why that might be the case um, without still uh, feeling like I enjoyed watching this episode. <laughs> I enjoyed watching it to the extent that it's an episode of Lost and even the worst episodes of Lost, I will always be able to find value in. But the value I find in whatever the case may be, ultimately, Mike, I will align with you and I will also give it a 2.1. The audience gave it a 2.3 as its average, which gives us 2.18 as the official score for whatever the case may be here as the current title holder for the worst episode of Lost in 11th place through the 11 episodes of the show counting the two-part pilot as one i imagine it's going to stay here for a little while but the truth is mike we are entering like a little bit of a doldrum phase in lost Mm -hmm. or at least that's sort of the the narrative around what we're getting into the next few episodes that we're talking about hearts and minds it's a boon episode people are not super stoked on boon uh after that we're going to be getting into special which i know that ben martell uh has teased to me in our conversations he thinks it's the worst episode of season one uh after that we're getting into homecoming which is the return of ethan rom which should be a very exciting event but i know that damon lindelof and carlton Cuse think that that's one of the very worst episodes of lost um so we're in an interesting time with season one this is right around the time that lost is really finding success and they're now having to go back and produce this back nine of the season uh and it feels like uh there's there's a little bit of friction behind the scenes that is leaking into the narrative and we'll talk about that. Uh, but I, but I think having having a two point one for whatever the case may be, averaging out as a two point one eight for uh, the final score feels fair to me. Yeah. Uh, given everything that we adjudicated here, with whatever the case may be, in uh, an episode of the podcast that was a lot longer than I expected it would be, Mike. Well, I think that dissecting what we don't like or things that we felt wrong about a piece of television can oftentimes be as long, if not longer, than dissecting good things. You know, it's it's easier to pick apart. So I'm not completely surprised because there's a lot of context behind it as well. But like you said, 2005 is going to start as not a, not a great year for loss. But you know what? Next week, we have Hearts and Minds, an episode so good it'll make you kiss your sister. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so we'll get into Hearts and Minds, which is an episode that I actually remember liking uh, more than the average polar bear. So we'll see if that holds up as we re-encounter it. That podcast is going to drop for you on November 8th. Get your feedback in by November 5th in the morning. Uh, you could send your feedback into us on Twitter, at Post Show Recaps, at Round Howard, at a Mike Bloom type. You can also email us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Subscribe if you have not done so already. Your ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated as always. With all of that said, Mike, does Count Jacula have anything he wants to say to close this thing out? Well, I read that I was supposed to stake him, so I grilled up a medium-rare porterhouse, but nothing's happened. Oh my god, he's dead. I was a vegetarian! <laughs> you shouldn't have given me a right. mistake! It was a mistake! 
Well, we may have to give Count Jackula an LVP point because he's dead, at least until next year. Nightmare, nightmare. All right. RIP Count Jackula, RIP whatever the case may be, and we will see you in another podcast in the next episode of Lost Down the Hatch, Hearts and Minds, dropping on November 8th. Take care, everybody. Bye. My lover stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sailing.